Facebook podcast starring Bill Tech. That's right. We got one of our favorite guests back after way too long. I, Mr. Way Tech, too I, long. He's like two months with the way, Indiana Jones too, episode. That's way too long. I if agree. You ask me. Um, Bill, I just wanted to say I was exhausted right to the point where you showed up to do this episode. And now I'm completely rejuvenated. It's just so great to see your face and to do this episode with you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us, man. I've been working around the clock. I've been working with this editor in Australia. So when it's 5 p.m. here, it's 8 a.m. there. And, and I've been working with this editor in L.A. And I'm in East Coast time. So I should be tired. But when I saw both of your handsome faces, and then I knew we were going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, L-U-V, love. I said, <laughs> you, you know what? I am fired up and ready to say yes to love. Ah, perfect. That's, That's too perfect. Excellent, man. Well, we won't we won't get into I, I just want to say you don't want to get into your secret super secret huge project you've been doing. But I think at least since the inception of this podcast, it's been my most anticipated thing. So I just want to let you know. I know you you dog tired from working on it, but I'm just sending as much goodwill as I can to you, man, because I'm so excited for it. And how so, close are you to the finish line? When is when is your completion date? We passed it many, many times. <laughs> we had an air date in November. We had an air date in March. We had an air date. It just keeps growing and growing. It's crazy. A lot of great music. Um, a lot of great interviews. A lot of great footage. You're going to love it. Um, I don't know, man. It could be two weeks from Locking Picture, and then we'll go through the post in New York. Oh, that would be and awesome. Then, Will you be up in New York amazing. for that or just remote with them? I'll probably go up at least, you know, once, at least for a week or something. You haven't. Well, we can talk about this off the air. I was going to ask if you know where you're doing post, what the yeah, idea is. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a, in more uh, circumspect circumstances. More explicit, yeah, more exactly. explicit detail. As long exactly. as you don't lose sight of that, you know, that original thing that sparked, you know, this this uh, this idea, this project for you. I think, you know, you can't get settled down with all the technical stuff and you know, I, I'm sure that's going to turn out to be amazing. Yeah, I never worry about the technical stuff. That stuff's on the other side of, of making art and expressing yourself. And whenever people try to tell you those rules, oh, well, you can't do this because whatever. I'm like, you, sir, are an enemy of art. You should. We're I gonna... always say, do you know, there's on, on the set, there's gear guys. Like if there's somebody who wants to tell you about the gear, it's just like those are the worst guys on set. But also the Tin Two guys, my my uh, friend Sophia, who's a uh, a director. You know the bathroom code that the like the the crew has that you say in your walkie Tin Two instead of I have to take a shit. Right, this is like the code. There are is a kind of guy like normally like a PA or a grip. They're almost always in the camera department that loves saying Tin Two. They're just that they love the 10-2 code. They love saying it as a joke. They love making each other giggle. And the 10-2 guys, when you're making films, those are the guys who are standing in the way of creating an artwork. And they're just always on set, no matter what you do. There's 10-2 guys. I, I couldn't agree with you more. When I started making films in Miami in the 90s, Joe Cardona and I, he was another, uh, he is another director down here. And we had a code. You know, we knew, you know, those guys were going to be on the set and they were, it's like having a plumber trying to make a movie. They just <laughs> like to say terminology. They like to say, you got a quarter apple, half apple. I'm like, is it a Oh box? my God. You about a fucking box? You yeah. Jackass? You talking and about I, some, uh, some, some fucking clothespins? 
C-47s? Uh, let me get a Jesus C-47. Christ. They're always crouching down, then they run over to the other side, they crouch down again, then they put 90 clothespins on their shirt. It's all in lieu of a personality. It's so much easier <laughs> to take on that persona rather than develop a personality or be helpful. Well, it and, just seems uh, like, do they even care about art? Like, what's their no, relationship they to it care. is always they strange wanna, to me. They could might as well be working at the dog track. They literally just are like <laughs> just doing a job. And then, but, it, but if that guy's uh, working at the dog track, I fucking love that guy. That's the difference. Yeah, I, when he's on the film set, I don't like it. When I meet that guy at the dog track, I'm like, tell me, tell me the dog track equivalent of a C47. Let me let uh, me see it. I feel like they're gonna switch the jerseys on the dogs. It's inhumane <laughs> anyway. We know it's inhumane and should be outlawed, but in addition to be inhumane, it's probably also fixed. Please don't kill me now. I got the mob after me now. That's all I need. Um but uh but uh i'm certainly switched the jerseys who could tell those dogs <laughs> apart but um but i digress but we you know there's always can i tell you a funny and... story about about animal racing from my dad so my dad was in kuwait sorry it just hearing the dogs made me think of this and this is going to be perfect john because of what we were discussing earlier, my dad was telling me, so I was in Kuwait and you wouldn't believe it. These fucking crazy camel jockeys they've got there. These, all these camel jockeys you see in Kuwait, it's really fucking nuts. And I was like, what are you dad? What are you talking about? Cause he's not a racist person in any way. And he's like, no, literally uh, they're these little wind up mechanical camel jockeys. And I'm like, wait, what are you fucking talking about? He's like, yeah, they put them on the back of the camels, these little machines that just whip the camels to get them to run. I'm like, are you talking about actual camel races right now and the mechanical jockeys they put on camels? Because that's a big relief that you're not saying this fucked up thing over and over again. I knew that he was incapable of saying anything like that, but I, I also- He had never heard the slur before to, too. That was what was amazing. To, that's bananas. Now I have to look up and find out what that thing is and see it and study it. Maybe I can get one on Etsy. Not that I have a camel, <laughs> but you never know. They look I, like little, gonna... like little, like traffic cones with like a whirring mechanical arm of one side that just perpetually with to make the, the camels. Yeah, yeah to it's make them really run. the harness technology. I'd be most interested in. How the hell do they stay on? You know, the, they the just like glomp them onto like, the hump, booking it. I'm gonna tell you right now. Fast. <laughs> Either at one of the fetish houses in New York City. You, you'll find many uh, and on etsy there's people that'll make a bespoke one for you yeah you know with your initials uh, i'm going john i'm going to get you a camel jockey for your birthday this year you'll find out exactly how it straps on to your hump <laughs> um yeah that sounded like a threat but hey <laughs> um yeah man uh, uh, not to get us off track included, i'm excited and, for and, it I, and I'll, I'll, I I just have to close it. There's one other movie bit of business. The guys yeah. on set that like to say numbers. You were talking about the people that say numbers. Yeah. When you're shooting a five five four eight seven four two forty seven. Yeah, it's it's the same as whether people are into photography or weapons or whatever there is. Half of it is just saying numbers. We got a six. <laughs> we running a six oh five forty four. Yeah, I'm running a five oh nine oh two. Yeah, in anything. <laughs> you're like okay, fantastic. We 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 sound like dolphins making sounds, but okay. Yeah, 780 reverb on that. Yeah, we said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, look, obviously, technical knowledge is incredibly important, and people who do serious technical work 
uh, does not disqualify them from being serious artists either, that there's many of the most talented artists you will meet are incredibly technically knowledgeable and technically adept. That can be an aspect of it. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, George Miller's wife editing Fury Road. When you listen to her talk, she's incredibly technically precise and knowledgeable, right? That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the guy that just like the movie doesn't even need to exist. He wants to move a sandbag and call a box an apple box or what, you know what I mean? Like that's those guys are who I mean. I know. So I sat down, no, we know. I sat yeah. down with, you know, a camera guy who's like Messiah is Wally Fister, right? He loves Wally Fister. And I wanted to talk to him about, oh, how Wally Fister got his start shooting like Shannon Worry softcore movies and things like that. And he had no interest in that whatsoever. It's like, <laughs> no, I'm not making fun. I that's my favorite thing about Wally Fister personally. <laughs> Harris Savini's got that start too, like consequence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's gotta start somewhere. And those are some good looking films. <laughs> I agree those, with that. those are some good looking women, Joan Severance <laughs> and Shannon Worry. I Can't agree put with them in that. The movie and not make the movie look good around them, or else they'll just <laughs> blow it up blow it off the screen john what is this episode we're doing today why do we have bill tech here where oh is any God, of this that was going a perfect segue chris to, to talk about love we're talking about joan severance and then the next thing we're going to talk who, about who is who i the... love with all my heart you do i, pos- I do i don't know let's, cinematic let's see that love signed vhs i got you chris where is that it's in the other room i'm not going getting up and going <laughs> oh, i thought you lost it that was the joke didn't you i thought you lost it no i kept like three the three signed ones i still have oh good 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 nice. yeah I thought you lost with the rest of your uh, your video collection. No, I lost all the movies I made. Uh, in high all right, school. I am gonna I'm going to introduce this episode because it was kind of my cockamamie idea, and it takes a little bit of explaining. But really, all it is is that a few couple of years ago, I'm talking with my good friend Bill Tech, and I'm always want to get inspiration and ideas from Mr. Tech. You know, for anything I'm working on, I was trying to write a script about a, a relationship between you know like a divorced guy and like a younger woman. And I was just like, I wanted to see some movies with kind of interesting views on love, perceptions of love, not just romantic films, but movies that had, you know, kind of complicated relationships and looked at it from like kind of fresh and even more realistic angles. And I knew that Bill would be a good person to ask about that specifically because Bill, besides being like just a romantic guy in general, he has like a real great appreciation for not not sentimental, not mawkish uh kind of stuff you'd see in movies but like genuine like n- interesting and com- complex relationships and films so that's something that i wanted to talk to him about and he produced this great list of of moments that he loves from films about relationships i thought it was great i really wanted to do an, an episode about it so i thought bill we would just walk through some of these films with you you kind of tell us what you like about them how they kind of reflect these feelings of yours and but just kind of start off like what do you think is like your ideal kind of movie when it comes to like a love situation? I mean, do you like rom-coms? Do you like kind of the old classy Hollywood sort of uh, romantic movies? I mean, what, 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 what do you walk away thinking like, ah, that, that, that just like stirred up the right feeling in me. It's interesting because when you asked me that question, I think I came up with a lot of moments that stick out for me, you know, specifically Mm -hmm. romantic moments in films that maybe even aren't, that romantic but for me they're romantic and so we i just kind of went to what pings what gets my heart going what opens up uh the the dead ossified cavity known as my heart (laughs) Um, 
and it, and it's great that you came to me as a as a qualified relationship anarchist uh, that I would be making these movies about love, but I could still feel love. And um, so I thought we, you know, I just put this little list together, and um, I know that we talked about some categories uh, for this. For me, it can be, you know, classic Hollywood, like Casablanca still destroys me. And then it's kind of quote unquote cliche, but it's a pretty fucking romantic movie. Um, it, or something modern, you know, so, sometimes I, I, I enjoy modern romantic comedies. I don't always find them romantic, but I enjoy watching them. And sometimes I find something more romantic in a, in a drama or a, or a melodrama. Sometimes there's that one little moment that you're like, wow, that got me. I didn't think that was going to get me. Where would you like to start? I, I do. Let me just... just say, I like that John Cribbs, who has been married for 20 years, almost. How long have you been married, John? We've been together 22 years. 22 years, went to Bill Tech, who's long divorced, and asked him for advice on how to write romance. I do appreciate well, that. Well, you know, you know, Vince's mom and I are still very best friends and yeah. um and we were married for a long time like 24 25 years and we you know you're we almost were, there I, john you're almost there no, I, we, two more we, years we, and then know, you can get divorced i think i really i've been lucky enough to have been in love a few times in my life and it is yeah and it is an amazing feeling i i you know i think it, i think sometimes people wait their whole lives and they'll fall in love but it's pretty bananas it's we're recording this the day before valentine's day and uh, i can't you know i can't think of two better people to spend valentine's day with unless <laughs> the day before uh, i never go out on valentine's day for all the the, the listeners out there i i really kind of warn against it i'm sure they're all seasoned romantic souls but that is indeed the night where you stay home i'll never forget vince's mother and i we went out on a valentine's day we went to go see topsy turvy which, oh, yeah? I nice. yeah, which I detested. I'm sorry. Oh. I would rather have a Barry Amenema than watch that film again. And that, oh, uh, Jim no. Broadband was great, but I didn't care for the movie. You, you need a Barry Amenema if you're getting certain x-rays done, Bill. <laughs> I've had several <laughs> Barry Amenemas, just for the record. I've had them just for pleasure, but nevertheless. <laughs> um, so with a, with your ex, with your uh, circulatory system fetishist that you date? Oh, anyway, you have on. no idea. You, you know, don't get me started. But um, sometimes the old Molly Shannon, the Molly Shannon routine. Don't get me started. <laughs> but um, she was that she do that comic character. Anyway, we we go out. We see Topsy Turvy. We get gum on our clothes at the theater. We go to this um, Chinese restaurant. We get food poisoning. It was oh, terrible. And, and it came to the and then when I told my buddy, oh, we're not. He's like, what do you get? You went out on Valentine's Day, schmuck. Don't go out on Valentine's Day. You got the day before. <laughs> you got the day after. Nobody's going out on Valentine's Day except amateurs. Except you reminded me of the Robert Altman movie, A Perfect Couple, where they have like this disastrous date where like he ends up getting like hammered in the head and goes to like the hospital, but like she's nursing him at the hospital. And it turns out that they enjoyed it because, you know, they kind of had this crazy way of getting to know each other. That's sort of romantic in its ways. That is sort of romantic. Sounds a little like Punch Drunk Love, which we're going to get to. There you go. Yeah. I would watch a version of Punch Drunk Love starring Paul Dooley. I will say that. Oh, much. yeah. It, 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 it almost is starring Paul Dooley. I think it's very similar to that movie. I never really thought about it. Now. Well, they use a, a song from Popeye in it, right? Yeah. That made my day. That made my day. I mean, I don't want to jump the gun, but uh, I remember having <laughs> to hide. I, I was in a band in high school, and it was all my rock and roll friends. I love Van Halen. And 
and I had bought the Popeye soundtrack because I fell in love with those songs in the movie. They're all by Harry Nilsson. Yeah. And um, so I brought home the soundtrack and I like hit it. Like in my mom's records. <laughs> I don't want my rock and roll friends and always listening to He Needs Me, He Needs Me or Sweet Haven. But when I saw it in the P.T. Anderson movie, I felt redeemed. There's this great, I don't know if you were familiar with the Christmas uh, special uh, Ziggy's Gift at all. No. They're, they they tapped Harry Nelson to write a song for it. And he must have written it in two minutes because it's just him going, love, love, love. <laughs> love is the answer. Love is the answer. Love, love, love. And it's great. And the, <laughs> like the craziest thing about it is like, it's beautiful. <laughs> actually well, that sounds kind of beautiful song. to be honest. It is amazing, but it's like he put clearly put it probably wrote in a bat in the bathroom, like right after they asked him to do it. But it's oh. uh <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing because it's Harry Nelson. It's Anyways, amazing. the way I thought we would just kind of go through the structure wise is that I kind of group these into categories, we'll run through the categories, I'll give like a little synopsis of each film we're about to talk about. And then we'll we'll just we'll just discuss it. We'll make it a real loose conversation, just hanging with Bill Tech, sort of the idea of this episode. Sound okay? I love it. And I love that you decided to call the episode. Love is complicated. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it is, Chris. You know, it's like being with the same person for 22 years. It's it's absolutely for me. I think it's great. But I, in a lot of ways, I'm an uncomplicated person. Sometimes I need, you know, I need to explore complication a little more. I need to, need to know, you know, what what it is that makes complication beautiful and what makes it an, an, I, I will, an intrinsic I will part say of love itself. As an outside observer, it's crazy to me that you think of your relationship as being uncomplicated. It's absolutely <laughs> bananas to me that that's your interpretation of your well, and Jordan's always relationship. Always easiest looking in, right? It's always <laughs> easiest looking in. No, I'm saying it, it is looks. I would not describe it as uncomplicated. But anyway, <laughs> go on. Comparatively, I guarantee it is. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> I just know when I was answering Ed up at TIFF this year, and I was you know talking to a couple young ladies, and you were and I was texting with them, and you just looked at me at one point, and you were like, "You got another text." Chris, it seems exhausting. And I was like, it is a little bit. It is. It's probably much easier to be with somebody for 22 years than to answer this many texts. Yeah, texting is, is exhausting to me for sure. Uh, so the first category is, of course, it's love in New York. Bill, we know you love New York City. You made the movie one day since yesterday. He made uh, the movies that define New York, which is a great documentary about some of the fantastic locations from uh, some of these classic films. And so, of course, the one we're going to start with is They All Laughed. How are we not going to start with They All Laughed? It is my favorite movie of all time, and it's also the movie that I, I got lucky enough to to make a film about with uh, Mr. Bogdanovich's blessing. Um, yeah, I think They All Laughed is not only my favorite movie, but my favorite romantic movie. And I'm, I, I'm curious to see, you know, your thoughts on it, because it, it approaches love from so many different perspectives it is a fantasy movie where you can fall in love with someone just by looking at them and that's a very hollywood idea that i think hopefully is that specific thing is maybe less we're we're, we're starting to catch on as a society that hey that's not necessarily the best idea in the world to see someone across the room and go like i love you <laughs> There's an incredible Bob, this incredible Bob Dylan video um, directed by uh, Nash Egerton, 
who did, I think he did Get the Gringo and he has a TV show. He directs all yeah. these Bob Dylan videos. He's a stuntman and a director. And and the Dylan videos are all super violent. Um, the one for Must Be Santa, people are having fist fights and falling out the windows. But the best one, and it is a comment on that kind of thing, is for Duquesne Whistle. And it kind of takes those Hollywood tropes of like, I see you from across the room and I bring you flowers and you're the one for me. And it just turns it on its ear. It's really a cool video if you get a chance to see it. But, check it out. It, it, but, but I like they all laugh because I think it's the best version of that sort of thing of seeing someone from across the room and knowing that they're for you because it also does happen. It does happen. I've met those people and I think it's an amazing feeling where you're like, it's electricity and it's, it's, it's crackling like, you know, wires to quote Mr. Springsteen. Um, and this movie captures that kind of love, certainly with uh, John Ritter and, and Dorothy Stratton's characters, which I think, you know, which we know is a standard for Mr. Bogdanovich and Miss Stratton, but also it captures that kind of more, you know, second time around or third time around a very middle-aged kind of exhausted kind of let's let's try because life is a little sweeter when there's love let's just try and how surprising that can be when it flowers and then it also has that wonderful spark of just promiscuity and sexual attraction and connection that is also kind of a precursor to love i think it hits all those points really well and um, within this romantic fantasy set in this fantasy New York. So it's just a, a kind of an, an enchanting uh, vision. And, and then in terms of its style, because it's like partly a silent movie, partly a Casavetti's movie, partly a, you know, it's just so many styles of filmmaking that it blends that it's like no movie ever made. Let me ask you this about it, because the basic premise, you know, is uh, the agents of the Odyssey Detective Agency, these three guys, John, Charles, and Arthur, also their boss, Leon, you know, it's just a what 48 hours in their, you know, lives, their romantic entanglements uh, all across uh, Manhattan. Which of these guys, and maybe the, maybe the answers changed, you know, as you, you know, you've moved on in life, but which of these guys do you like uh, sympathize with the most? Well, when I first saw them, I was 13. So it was all about John Ritter, who was a mm-hmm. favorite actor of mine from Hero at Large and Three's Company. That's actually why I was even seeing the movie. Um, and Dorothy Stratton, so beautiful. She was 20, you know, at the time. And, and I don't think there's a physical creature as gorgeous, you know, as Peter said, may rest in peace, that built dogs used to stare at her. <laughs> um, um, I'd say, darling, everyone, she said, Peter, everyone's looking at you. And he said, no, darling, they're looking at you. No, Peter, they're looking at you. He said, they're looking at me. They're looking to see who you're with. <laughs> um, but uh, of course it was Ritter and Stratton because as a kid, you don't have that kind of emotional base. And that's, it's all about that. As an adult who's taken a lot of his cues for, for, for sexual maturity and relationship maturity from these crazy movies that Mr. Bogdanovich would make, uh, like St. Jack or She's Funny That Way, aka Squirrels to the Nuts, that have the infidelities and and Triss and all kinds of things, and they don't judge the characters at all. Um, now I identify with Ben Gazzara. And uh, very much identify with Ben Gazzara and that sort of world-weary thing. And that's a very middle-aged feeling. 
Um, I was lucky enough to see the movie when Noah Baumbach presented it at the um, at the BAM, and I saw it with Mr. Bogdanovich, but his daughters and Louise Stratton, and I got to oh. hear them them speaking about it. And they hadn't seen the movie because it was surrounded by such tragedy. They hadn't seen the movie theatrically since like 82 or 83. And, and, and the daughters are in it. It should be mentioned. The daughters are in it. Yeah. And as, course, kids, as kids. Yeah. As, as kids. And, and Tony and Louise were saying, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. They were like, wow. Like, I totally identified with Ben and Audrey this time. Like, I always think of this movie and I think of, of, of John and Dorothy. But now I was like, Oh wow! I feel the other one, the other relationship, because it's it's a really interesting movie in that it it hits on a lot of levels. Um, Jesse Hawthorne Fix said it was like a video game; you could just pick your favorite character and follow that character <laughs> around. They're all so different, you know. That's great, and they're all yeah. like in this little map of New York. I love the different representations of you know finding love at different stages. You know, whether it's John Ritter with so much energy running all around the city chasing after this woman, or you know. Like you said, Ben Gazzara, who's just kind of fatigued and tired and but like also sees like an opportunity for like a real emotional connection with this woman whose husband is jilting her and, you know, is basically given up like the idea of love at all. And also, like I feel like my favorite character is always the Colleen Camp character, only because <laughs> she represents such a great idea of like Cupid's arrow, like kind of deflecting and then like finding a different way, you know, like you never know what you're going to end up with, you know, like one one design for like what your like love life could be. It turned out to be something else entirely. And I think love that she's almost like the center of that in the movie for me a lot. She's really outrageous in that movie. And that's really her, you know. Uh, I was lucky enough to go through all the notes and papers going back and forth between her and Peter, who they'd been involved romantically. And some of them are in the documentary. She's literally writing, Peter, I'll give you a touch assist. And, you know, <laughs> and she is Christy Miller. She was 22, I think, at the time of that movie. And like Lauren Bacall, who I think, She's definitely modeled after a screwball kind of Hoxian character. But but like Bacall, she seems to be playing much older. She comes off almost as 28, 30. Um, and it really, Christy is Colleen Camp. If you ever have the opportunity to meet her, you're like struck by her energy. One of the most charming things in the movie, and it's not necessarily about love, but all those connections that happen where you meet people. And as, as Wes Anderson says in the DVD interview with Peter, you have instant rapport. And in everything is just, instantaneous and he's like it's like a fantasy and peter's like no but that happens in real life he goes yeah but this movie's full of it and <laughs> but you get you you get the impression with peter that that does happen on, on the last interview we shot i'm in la i'm in an uber and there's a scene in the movie where the cab driver played by patty hansen this is keith uh richards the cab driver's picking up bangers arm and that's a literally a quote from uh the big sleep where the cab driver picks up um, Bogey and she says why don't you call me sometime at night I work during the day and then it's in Pulp Fiction with Esmeralda Villalobos picks up Butch and so it's that is kind of keeps getting quoted um, but you know she gets the cab driver picks up Ben Gazzara. and I was in LA to shoot the movie and I wound up having a kind of uh, an entanglement as uh, people use that word today with the Uber driver and the next huh. day I said Peter Peter, you're not going to believe what happened. Okay, I had this connection with the Uber driver, and I said, you know, why don't you clock out? Let's go have dinner. And we did. We went to El Coyote. We had dinner, and then we went, you know, we hung out. And he's like, well, see, Billy, these things do happen. <laughs> <laughs> but it would happen around him. He's a magical cat, and those kinds of things just happen around him. 
That's great. It's I love that this is such a grown up film with such a fairy tale kind of, uh, you know, like you say, like everyone just kind of becoming falling instantly in love and also kind of having it all be fresh, but at the same time familiar, like they've known each other their whole lives. It's amazing to make a movie that's very much steeped in like real New York, but like feels just weirdly mad and like has characters who are depressed and, you know, kind of exhausted by life. But like, it just like, it seems magical the entire time, completely uncynical, even while it's, you know, uh, having characters who are, you know, big kids. (laughs) It is a brazenly uncynical movie without a doubt. It really does have that feeling of like, this is the closest movie I've ever seen to communicating the feeling of being in love, that heady, trippy feeling. It's interesting about Bogdanovich where he's somebody who's accused of being a womanizer and sometimes gets framed in very negative terms in that way. But I really feel like what I feel in his films and what I understand about him and believe about him is he genuinely falls in love but he falls in love a lot, but I think he genuinely loves women and genuinely loves them, not likes and respects and all of that, but like loves women. And it's easy for him to fall in love is what gets communicated through his films, but that doesn't make it uh, fake or false or exploitative or something like that. It's not womanizing ego stroking behavior that it's, it's a genuine love of women, you know, and not in a, um, the sort of like feminist respectful, you know, like we're equals kind of way. That's not what, what's meant by it. I think it's a genuine sort of old school, if not chivalrous sort of just human male love of women uh, that runs through a lot of his movies. And it feels very genuine and very powerful to me and extremely out of fashion from about 20 different angles, you know? It's a, something that I think you're hundred percent right. And it, it, he really loves and respects women. And you know, not only Sybil says it in the movie, but all these ex-girlfriends are in, they all laugh and they're all like, he stays friends with everyone. And you see the genuine love and appreciation so you know everybody was treated with respect. Everything was, you know, is this working for you? Everything's done with love and respect. As And as he loves women, as Molly Haskell points out in the doc, you know, he was the only director of that era that was making movies that had not only the women in the center, as she says, but also all the supporting women. Everybody comes off great. Everybody else is really just interested in men. Or, or Ewoks. Or Ewoks. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. It is funny that at the same time, though, the Patty Henson character is such a, like an idealized feminist in a lot of ways. She's completely independent. She's, you know, she goes she goes in for it if she wants it. She pops up wherever she wants. She's like this completely liberated character in the movie. And like, that's like her charm is like how great. Yeah, like, I did not mean to is. imply that his work is in any way anti-feminist. I'm saying his his love is not, there's a kind of like, <sighs> creepy woke dude who uses the like hey i'm one of the good ones to like sleaze on women and that's not the vibe you get from these movies is what i would say more than anything is like can you believe how powerful and beautiful these ladies are from someone that just like i i respect the hell out of you from a guy that is like a gross creep you guys know exactly what i'm fucking talking about that's not the vibe these movies have is all i'm saying no, not at all. I, I, I agree with you. And, and I, no, I think it came across. I, it's funny you mentioned Patty Hansen. Her thing with Ben is so kind of sophisticated. Like they literally 
go to sleep together and don't do anything. They just sleep. She says, I don't like to, he's, you know, I don't like to sleep alone, I guess. And he proposes like, well, let's just sleep. And then he falls for Audrey and, uh, and he, and he, he tells his boss, you know, I, I, last night, Leon, I slept with a 23 year old, put my arms around, I kissed her and went to sleep. And he, and, and, and Leon's like, you know what, but he, you know, everybody's really looking to have their heart open up again. Um, and that is more, there are different, different degrees of difficulty in opening that muscle up for the different characters, sophisticated movie and, and breezily. So let me ask you, how do you tie this movie? If we're talking about New York and love to the other two movies that are the New York city love movies on the list, do you see any thread running through? I feel like it's easy to connect it to moonstruck much harder to connect it to jungle fever. Do you see any thread through these or do you like them as a contrast? No, I think actually that they all laugh could happen down the block from jungle fever. But I think Moonstruck <laughs> is even is more of a, a more, more of a stretch to be honest. And I didn't group them. I think that's Mr. Cribbs. But um, you know, yeah, Jungle Fever. <laughs> you know, Jungle Fever for me, the scenes with um, with I liked that that movie. And I and it's at the time it came out. You know, I thought Spike did a lot of very provocative press on it. So that press, I think, was the, the maximum amount of press to get people in theaters. I remember I had it huge opening and I remember being there opening night but I don't know if it was really what the movie was about I thought the movie was much more complicated and you know than what he was kind of saying in the press and for me the John Torturo story that's the story that really yeah is is romantic because this you know I I I think it's about following your heart even when your circumstances your neighborhood your everything around you is saying you know you can't do this of course it doesn't work out for angie but it but it works out for john and i i thought it was really really sweet and telling in that way yes so it's a brutal be- movie yeah. i mean it's a brutal movie with like racial slurs and a much more heightened realism and so forth but um it still felt like New York to me, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas Moonstruck to me feels like a little bit more than like a Hollywood New York in a way for me. Definitely. You were going to say an although, LA although, New York. No, I was going to say an <laughs> elevated. Oh. Although it is funny how much the two movies have in common. When you think about it, they both have an engaged woman who falls in love with another man. They have, you know, subplots dealing with the older parents kind of having like their take on what these relationships are. I think it's kind of funny, like there's their similarities, even though they are completely different movies, obviously could not be any different. Uh, yeah. Like that, even though they are completely polar opposites, they're still both like romantic New York movies at heart. They are, but there's something Hollywoody about um, Moonstruck, whereas there's nothing, I think Jungle Fever and They All Laugh have a kind of an indie loose yeah. pedigree to them. And I, I, Jungle Fever has that. I mean, Moonstruck has that thing where you know. I remember watching Brighton Beach Memoirs, and people in film comment were, "Should Judith Ivy and Blythe Danner be playing Jewish people?" Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I didn't say it. I read it in an article, and then, and then you're watching uh, Moonstruck, which all my Italian friends love. They love, you know, <laughs> they, they love it. They're like, "This is the most romantic movie." I'm like, I think half these people are really Italian. 
<laughs> they don't they don't mind a woman named Dukakis playing in Italian. Yeah, nobody minds. It's one of those cool like Hollywood things. Like, well, it's just a movie, guys. I watched um, it again recently, and I was really struck by it. I love Moonstruck. Moonstruck. <laughs> I was moonstruck. I was one. I was at one point. I was going out with this really lovely, beautiful, amazing Nicaraguan woman, and we went to the Met Opera on a night with a full moon. And I and I had to get a photo of her there at the fountains in front of the Metropolitan Opera House with the full moon, and say to her, you know, the line, "I'm glad I, you know, my two favorite things in the world are you and the opera," you know, and uh, and and, and you do turned around, and Murray Funderburg was there with the date. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but uh, no, I really, I really love Moonstruck and really, really feel that movie. But I was struck by watching it recently. It's super sitcom-y in both its writing and execution and resolution. It's when you say it's Hollywood, it's 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 not even <laughs> Hollywood to me. It's a very Los Angeles kind of conception on what entertainment should be. There's a lot of scenes that are that are straight out of young Sheldon or something. No, no offense to, uh, oh, to the movie. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's just barely hovering like you came back from the flight early, you know, that kind of thing, you know, all throughout it, a, a lot of its uh, sense of structure and timing and story and resolution are very sitcom-y and that, that doesn't reduce my love of it at all. But when you say heightened or elevated, there's, there's a, uh, there's a total artificiality to it that is entertainment industry artificiality that there's none of and they all laughed and that there's none of in um, Jungle Fever, which is trying very hard to be um, gritty and real in some way, as much as those are cliches to use for uh, a Spike Lee movie from that era. It is trying to be that it's it's trying to it's trying to be a romance set in new york in an ugly time and not shy away from it you know i i think so and i think you know the fact that it 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 it, it takes on some tough things and does so in many ways boldly but in many ways very subtly it's a it's a it's a neat trick that movie complicated movie uh, moonstruck i think one of the things that saves it is of course i love that they play that samore and i love yeah. the opera scene and i love Cher with all her hair you know? Cher is amazing and, and I, I love her and, and but but for me the thing that saves that movie is nick cage because that was the time when i was following anything he'd do yeah i'd be there opening night with yeah. vampire's kiss or he was always just doing interesting things and that that, that stopped after a while but there was a period where you knew he was going to do crazy interesting things and the fact that he borrows that speech and i know my film is it from a murano where he points at his hand he has his hand where's my hand <laughs> he, he, he that's from a from a silent film i believe oh is it oh, i did I not know, know that yeah it's from a and he just quote and it those it from weird, metropolis i gotta look it up i can see um, that where he's kind of like pointing at his hand at one point in i think i think that's what it is i never it's I made that connection a, though a cool, get marcus pin on this I saw him say it in a, in an interview or something like you know I borrowed this bit from uh, you know whatever film and and I he really brings that weird quality that makes it just a little bit quirky you know it yeah he, it's amazing how one performance can transform a movie he does the same thing in Peggy Sue got married and he just keeps doing it throughout that era he's got the best line in the movie his monologue about you know uh, it's not 
like they told you love is love doesn't make things nice it ruins everything it breaks your heart it makes things a mess oh my God. we're not perfect we have to ruin ourselves and break our hearts and to love the wrong people and die the storybooks are bullshit i think it really gets to the whole theme of love being complicated you know that it's not necessarily all happiness and uh you know flowers and chocolates it's really like kind of like breaking yourself and building yourself back up and maybe doing it with other people and kind of letting them into that process. I love that moment in the movie. He's so phenomenal in it. That's phenomenally put in. I think people forget how extraordinary that beach is. There's a great way. There's a great thing too, where um, he, uh, at the end, which is kind of like a rushed, you know, Hollywood ending, obviously things kind of wrap up very neatly at the end of that, at the breakfast table in that movie. But the moment where he takes the ring to give it to her, the ring that, you know, she's not going to marry Danny Aiello anymore. She, you know, she's going to marry him. He takes the ring and like, does a thing where he like, he turns and then turns back to give it to her. It's like the most, just a heart ripping, beautiful, like little gesture that he does. That just really makes that moment. Just, ah, I love it. It is very, very beautiful. And it's a beautifully acted movie. A lot of those actors never really got a, a part like that often. You know, I can't see a big full moon without thinking. And I know all these other people that feel that way. Oh, there's Cosmo's crazy moon. Like that stuck, you know? Absolutely. And Jungle Fever, I, I, I'm i glad that you specifically pointed to Turturro in that movie. I think he's great in that. I think that his moments uh, with uh, Tyra Farrell in that movie, where he's, you know, kind of coming out of his shell, where he says, you know, this very withdrawn kind of personality who doesn't really know what he wants but like finds this clearly finds this woman fascinating and intelligent and wants to like have a connection with her that that whole build-up you know really gives that movie like a really like a hard spine like you know of a structure i, I love that subplot a lot it, it's beautiful when he when he's attacked by these racist dudes and then he shows up at her house i no spoilers but it's one of the most touching things i've ever seen and tyra farrell is great as the object of his affection it's I just find it very, very moving. And there's so much going on in that movie that that whole subplot with Sam Jackson and Halle Berry or when, you know, when Ozzie Davis shoots his son. I mean, all that. There's a lot going on in that movie. But the love stuff really, really connected. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's showing up to the date with, you know, all beat up and, you know, a wreck. But like, and then Spike lets it end on that moment for them, you know, like, hey, he still makes it to the date. You know, I mean, like, also a, every day, a very every, hope. yeah, every no, day in Harlem and Bensonhurst, you know, or uh, Greenwich Village, wherever you are, it's like you're going to deal with bullshit. You're going to deal with terrible people. But like at the end of the day, like you get you went on the date, you know, you got through that. And, like you made a connection with somebody. It's really it's like, ver- because that movie, it's sweetness. It's a very hopeful scene, especially yeah. around a movie that's not very hopeful at all. Yeah. Yeah. Also has a terrible ending. Sorry, I've always hated that last moment with the prostitute. No, it's, it's not great. Not it's a great not moment. So, not, so good. <laughs> not a great moment. Um, but yeah, let's 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 uh, switch coast here. Let's talk about movies set in L.A. Love movies set in L.A. I'm gonna throw this question out to Chris because I know that you have split time between two the two cities. What's the more what's the more romantic city, New York or LA? Are you kidding? Los Angeles is the worst city on earth. Los Angeles <laughs> is the only place I have ever been to where every bad cliche is true and somehow worse. It's it's really is the it, there's nothing to recommend Los Angeles. Nothing to recommend it. 
I, 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 I would be shocked. I can't believe we've never talked about this, that you would even ask me. I, I mean, oh, we've talked about it. I'm oh, so you're setting the record. <laughs> <laughs> My my favorite Los Angeles memory is because uh, I had to be out there a fair amount for work um, is going into like a 7-Eleven in November and it was like hot out. It was like 80 degrees and like a shirtless dude passed me coming out of the 7-Eleven, like a grimy guy and like bumped into me and I got his sweat on my shirt. I had just like this guy sweat on my shirt and I walked inside and Frosty the Snowman was playing on the radio because it was like Christmas time. And I was like, fuck this place. This is everything about this is so fucking stupid. Like how everyone out here at any rate. <laughs> uh, I, I, yes, there's nothing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't even imagine. It's not a place that's, that could foster human emotion or love that Los Angeles is, is a city of, broken down vans with people sleeping inside them and other people being like yeah that's the way to live that's what that city is <laughs> well, i bet they have like a vintage motorcycle in the back of the van at the same time um well the it's funny the the cliches being true i guess maybe uh the reason that this movie works so well it happened in la which i didn't never heard of until bill you, you uh, mentioned it um i you know it's it's funny how many times you see something that's like a satire or like sending something up and you're like, oh, okay, this is like a Hollywood version of like that, that, you know, uh, that standard. But in, it happened in LA. It really feels like so there's an honesty to like the kind of shallowness and the, you know, of the characters and like the way that they live their lives. That's makes it really charming and fun. And I'm really glad you, uh, you, you recommended this one. I, I stumbled upon it on Hulu and, um, uh, and then just, you know, I, I like the trailer. So I watched it and I thought Michelle Morgan, who wrote, directed and stars in it, it did such a great job with um, kind of capturing, not kind of, but in capturing love among very shallow, superficial people. And it doesn't judge them. It has a lot of fun with them. But I know a million people like that, not just in L.A., but in Miami, where you're like, what? there's not much going on under the <laughs> surface, is there at all? But it's not hostile towards them. It's very affectionate. It's I think it's very funny. And I also, of course, love her style, you know, the cutting, the framing, the the uh, just the way she presented the maison. I'm not going to say my, I'm not going to say that it sounds pretentious, but the way she presents everything, the way she cuts and put the camera. I was crazy about the movie for a lot of reasons. And it's such a great example of how, you know, you make your movie, you go to Sundance, Hulu buys your movie, and then they just bury it. They just put it on Hulu. Like it's on Hulu. Okay. And, but you didn't promote it. You didn't let people know you had something really special, you know, really special, unique little, um, I wouldn't even call it a romantic comedy. I would call it a movie about love among pretty superficial people in Los Angeles. Um, it's, it's the, the whole exciting incident is that this vapid woman decides to break up with her boyfriend because they're too happy. <laughs> right. I, he's, he's like, he's like, you, you, you keep asking me. He's like, you keep asking me to walk. It's like, right. But I'm not, it's not like I'm asking you to try crack. Well, I don't want to walk anymore. <laughs> I don't want to walk anymore. She won't play games. Just everything about it felt very real. Felt like a lot of people that I know. And uh, I, mean, I just her fear of the, Twister was really funny. 
It's a very funny little movie, and and those weird entanglements you wind up in. You know, she goes to spend time at a at a friend's place. She can't get cell phone reception. I just dug. It felt a lot like silly people that I know myself at my silliest, and uh, I thought you know it was a real tour de force for her. And I, uh, she, you know, the whole cast is really charming, but she was a wonderful writer. Is a wonderful writer director. I wish it was more popular, you know, um, or rather. I'm sure it would be popular if people get a chance to see it. So often that happens. It happened with with One Day Since Yesterday, where it's like, okay, it's on Netflix, but you didn't promote it. You didn't do anything with it. We were the number – it's not like Trump here. We were number one. But we were number one for two weeks. But, <laughs> you know, nobody knows. They didn't – you know, that nobody promoted it. So there's so many cool movies on so many of these services that that nobody's just even aware of. And they so – that that's had happened to a friend of mine – Adam Leon made this movie called Tramps that Netflix bought for a, what seems to me to be a lot of money. And just that was it. And you never saw a single promotion for it. You never saw anything. It was just bought and like th- thrown into the void in some way. It's a heartbreaking thing. It's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing. It's it's really hard to get going again after that. I think, I, um, I think the I w- check, I think the check he got dried a lot of his tears with that one <laughs> that's funny well you know in 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 i know a lot of times you know by the time you're done it it balances out so sometimes the money isn't you know but you're yeah. anyway that it, what's funny about that la category is that in all the movies that we chose it, to chris's point and i don't mean to put down la but everybody's somewhat dim i mean down and out in beverly hills <laughs> is another great example of you know barb um Barb Whiteman and Dave, is it Dave Whiteman? Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, they're fun. They're successful. They're cute. They're not Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> uh, um, and I really enjoy their, uh, the depiction of their marriage, uh, the very Mazursky-ish uh, kind of depiction where he's going downstairs and having an affair with Elizabeth Pena, who's their maid. Um, they have affection for each other, but it's clearly been a while I, I, and it, and it's it suggested a, too that barb is kind of like facilitated this affair with the maid right by like hiring elizabeth Pena and kind of like pushing him toward her so he'll leave her alone more or less more or less you know and um there i love their portrayal of a married couple uh where she's doing you know yoga and she's doing her alms at barb how do you say uh felice uh, how do you say happy new year in spanish um feliz año um, <laughs> and uh when the the homeless man played by nick nolte's gonna gonna jump in the in the pool and um it's based on a renoir film right? yeah you guys know that and he's gonna jump in the in the pool and and he's like barb is that the new pool man i love the whole they're just so out of it dial 911 as he's running down the stairs with the phone and uh you know he's giving the guy mouth to mouth you're gonna get aids honey it's very, uh, I think it's kind of realistic uh, about, you know, that kind of couple at that particular stage in their life. And I really enjoy their uh, relationship. I find it very real. This is what I have to revisit because you kind of like um, made me appreciate Mazursky films in a way that I never had before. And especially like what a, another great like love story he did was Robin Williams and Maria Conchita Alonso in Moscow on the Hudson. Like I was that, really moved by their relationship in that movie. 
She's one of my so all-time good. favorite movies. One yeah. of my all-time favorite movies. And one of my all-time favorite music cues when he breaks up with her at the perfume counter and he walks out and they play the gap band. I think it's you dropped the bomb on me and he's walking out. And then of course it turns out to be uh diegetic music. It's on the the radio in his limo that he's driving. Right. But right. it's a great moment and and their relationship when they're in the tub and yeah, the tub. I get choked up, but there's an American flag um shower curtain. It's it's a beautiful flick. It is, it is. And so I'm gonna have to watch this one again. Like are there any moments specifically that kind of I love that. I mean, I love that Mazursky did Budo safe from drowning in like in a modernized kind of, you know. I, I think it's thing. got a lot of funny, it's got a lot of funny things to say about a lot of I always things. love like, I mean, the, it's got great. I always love the interloper who like changes every the family's live stories, you know. You can't get enough of those. That's beautifully done, but also the relationship with their children is beautifully rendered. It's you think that movie's made in the 80s and early 80s, and it's got great things to say about like race, you know, little Richard is their neighbor. And has some hilarious things that's to say right. about police response time for the Whitemans. Get, get, that's their name. Uh, versus when he calls, um, he's got very valid complaints about everything. Their children. They have a, a, a transgender child, and they have um, who's you know kind of searching for his own thing and working with video. He's kind of interacting through the world through technology, and it's like, was this the eighties? This is movie super prescient, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I loved it. I loved it, and I you know, really don't like. I really don't like scenes from a mall, which he did with Bette Midler in L.A. Also, and that's a, not yeah, a good. That, movie, was, that but... was not good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say my relationship to this movie is that I I didn't see it when it came out in '86. I was a young kid. I remember commercials for it. Um, when I was a teenager, I was getting into Renoir and I heard that there was a movie based on uh, a Paul Mazursky movie based on Budo, say from drowning. And I said, oh, that'll be interesting. And but I had this movie confused in my head with the Paul Bartel movie scenes from a class struggle in Beverly Hills. Right. Which to add to the additional confusion stars Paul Mazursky. He's in it in a bit part in the Paul Bartel movie. So I watched scenes from a class struggle thinking, what the fuck does this have to do with Budo say from drowning? I cannot put this together. And then when I finally realized I was watching the wrong movie and I was like, but Paul Mazursky's in, it was so hard. At the same time, I watched Down and Out in Beverly Hills. And in my mind, I cannot separate what happens in either one of them and what they are. They have merged together in one late 80s satire of Los Angeles and poverty and uh, shallow rich people with Paul Mazursky directing and being in one. They've just merged into one mass in my brain. They even have similar posters. They have very similar posters, but I think that's the Beverly Hills poster law. I think whether you're doing, uh, you know, star maps or <laughs> Beverly Hills, you know, Troop Beverly Hills with Shelley Long. If you don't show that Beverly Hills, yeah. you know, that stupid sign, yeah. I know. you know, you, yeah, you're penalized. Um, I once um, I understand about the confusion. I think it'd make a fine double bill. Those two movies. When I had uh, I rent, I used to manage a video store and I remember recommending um law wings of desire but i think i said law of desire oh and my friend was like dude i went i took that movie home i watched it with my dad and his dad was like some conservative dude yeah and he's like and you know he starts out it's pretty hardcore man 
like, what did you give me? And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's angels looking at things in Berlin. What, what kind of homophobe are you? Just flow with it. You know, watch the movie. The angels are looking. And it took us forever to figure out, like, oh, no, that's law. Of it's the fucking Al- Almodovar movie from his, like, yes, provocateur era. Correct. Back, back we- when he was, I don't know if the kids know that Almodovar used to make, like, John Waters-esque castration-filled, you know, pr- provocations. 100%. Yeah. So moving into our third LA movie, Punch Drunk Love, right? Story of a lonely themed toilet plunger company owner and putting promotional loophole exploiting Barry Egan, played by Adam Sandler, and his relationship with businesswoman Lena Leonard, played by Emily Watson. I, at the time, coming off Magnolia, did not ever want to see a Paul Thomas Anderson movie ever again. <laughs> Never again. And then my friend saw it and told me about the, um, I'm looking at your face and I want to smash it. Just want to take a sledgehammer and smash it, squeeze it. You're so pretty. Told me about that line. And I was hooked. Was and it, was that Adam it. Enders who told of you about it? Of course it was Adam Enders. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And so I went to see it and I loved it. It's still my favorite PT Anderson movie. I'm glad you're a fan, Bill. I'm a fan. And that's what I mean. Love for me. That's what it feels like. I've been lucky enough to have been in love like that a few times in my life. And it is, bananas i mean i love i just i can't say i mean i i I stumbled to even speak about it but when he when they they have such affection for each other and when he becomes so empowered by that love that he flies over there and handles philip seymour hoffman and just the way that like everything's great and they get blindsided by that car and then they're gonna beat him up and he's just nope it's not gonna happen it's so good i've loved my life it makes me stronger than anything you can imagine it's so good and so powerful and so unpredictable it's great it's great it's so much fun and such a sweet film especially when you can you know compare it to something like phantom thread with its toxic relationship (laughs) and movies like that it's It's uh really taps into that kind of bogdanovich sort of you know uh kind of uncomplicated complicated you know atmosphere that i really enjoy it's got that. It's got, it kind of takes Altman, but it takes away, I think, the, some of the cynicism and replaces it with a really romantic heart. Those, I don't know what you call those, those stone, those beautiful art things that are in the movie. Then that John Bryan score, it's, I mean, it's reappropriation of uh, the, the Popeye song. Um, I think it's just gorgeous and uh, powerful. I just love that movie. And when you're in love, I mean, I just think for me, that's how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. I I love this movie too. And I'm somebody who really, really detests Paul Thomas Anderson as a director. And same thing with John after like, I don't like Boogie Nights. I don't like Hard Eight. Uh, and I hated Magnolia. One of the only movies I've ever walked out of. And um and I, I don't even know why I saw this movie and I have never been more surprised to love a movie even now because I dislike his following movies way more than I dislike those preceding ones that I've just said that I dislike. Uh, if, you know, I, I just think I think that he's somebody who tries to bludgeon his audience with his genius, but what's operating behind his movies is actually incredibly thin, shallow ideas. He's just trying to sort of beat an audience into submission with like virtuosity and big emotions and that they're very thin movies something like the master there will be blood these are just 
intellectually incredibly paper thin nothings, you know? And so even now, when I think about this movie, it fucking shocks me how much I love this movie. And it comes from an alien planet compared to his other stuff. Although I do think Phantom Thread is in the same universe. And I and I like Phantom Thread, although not as much as the people who love it, love it. But I, I this movie... I love this movie. I love thinking about this movie. I, I, when I think about this movie, I feel really good. I'm still knocked out by it. I just think there's something completely magical about this movie. It, even in the sense of it, it transcends what he's normally capable of as a, as a, an artist and a filmmaker. I will say like for all the negative thoughts on Paul Thomas Anderson, his like casting inspirations is not one of his weaknesses, you know, whether it's to, could Philip see um, her? No, he's a, he's incredibly, incredibly overtly talented, but he's he's the filmmaking equivalent of a child actor who grew up and didn't understand how to be a person. He got he became he was dubbed a genius at like age 22 or whatever the fuck it is. And I don't I just think that he coasts on he's like Ingve Malmsteen. He can play all the fucking notes really fucking fast. And I would never be able you can't argue Ingve Malmsteen ain't a great guitarist, but goddamn that shit sucks. You know, and I think it's the same thing with Paul Thomas Anderson. But his casting instincts are great, whether it's putting Philip Baker Hall in the lead or casting Louis Guzman in a film. And casting Adam Sandler as the lead in this film was like a genius move that he saw the Denise show sketch on Saturday Night Live and, you know, saw that like (laughs) that rage that like flew out of him in that sketch. I think that's great. And I I think that Emily Watson, you know, makes a really great you know, contribution to this film is her character. She's she's amazing. She, she's and has the, even has that response to his sledgehammer line about like, I want to chew your face. I want to scoop out your eyes <laughs> and eat them. She's fucking phenomenal. And I love she's both of them. Phenomenal. Great chemistry. She, she's amazing. I and I I you know this is why you bring me on to, to be the contrarian. You know, I, I <laughs> Bo- Bo- Boogie Nights is my is my third all time favorite movie, and I love Magnolia. The trailer makes me cry. Just the trailer. But you know, the, some of the trailer ones, makes you know, me cry too. <laughs> but the, but the uh, some of the latter ones you know we can we can discuss but but those early ones I dig and um you know yeah it's it it slayed me and I've seen it again and I've gotten to see it again in the theater too and and I have you know I have the DVD with all the cur- you know I, I'm so into it yeah I find it very romantic I'm glad it's good this next category well wait let me ask you guys a question because with that movie. I'm surprised to hear you guys both say it's romantic. To me, it seems like an explosive expression of dysfunction that can't be differentiated from healthy and unhealthy behaviors. That one of the mysteries and ironies of love is that deeply unhealthy, unwell things when you're in love resemble deeply perfect, beautiful, amazing things. And that's the irony I like about it. But to me, it's right on a a razor's edge between being actually romantic and being actually abusive, terrifying that movie, you know, and I think that's one of its virtues about it in a very and very dangerous area to play with and play around in that he's in, you know, uh, and in sort of on to something human and difficult. But I, I think they're, I'm a little surprised to hear both of you describe it in unabashedly romantic terms. It's about a psychopath. 
You know, it's about a man child with no control over his emotions, especially violent, explosive rage. It's about somebody who's been oppressed by womanhood as, what is it, nine sisters, seven sisters his entire life and has been unable to develop a successful, healthy relationship to it so that when he encounters a real emotion for someone, he only has these really unhealthy terms through which to express this healthy emotion. What's not romantic about that? <laughs> <laughs> that that's that's I love hearing you, you know, think on these things and, and express yourself because yeah, well, I, I can't argue with that kind of logic. That does seem to be what the text is. Um that does seem to be it. I always looked at it, I knew it was autobiographical. I knew that P.T. Anderson had, you know, like six sisters or something crazy like that. And um, so I assumed he brought a little of his own thing. I mean, I'm 55. I don't rage anymore. But I, you know, <laughs> in my 20, 25, and I was a little bit flummoxed by some of the choices that were thrust upon me by my family. And I, I think I had a little bit of that. I recognize yeah. his character's anger for sure. I don't feel it now, but I, I did at certain points. It just oh, me humanized too, for it sure. for me. Yeah. It humanized it for me. I, I mean, that when he's looking around in her apartment to try to find her or he leaves her alone in the hospital, go fix things. I mean, it's a long lost part of myself. I think it's a young man's feeling or young person's feeling, but I recognized a lot of it. So maybe yeah. that, maybe I'm no, no, I do too. When we're younger. Yeah. One interesting thing Marcus pinpointed out to Rob Cotter, which I'll share, uh, that she's at the supermarket in the back when he's getting all the yogurt. Yeah. She's in, in the background. You can see her back there. It's not yeah. very telegraphed, but it was something that I saw in Marcus's. Um, maybe I saw it on Twitter, maybe somebody just sent it to me, but I was like, oh shit, that's cool. I didn't know she was back there. Like huh. kind of following him around. Yeah, I didn't either. In the supermarket. Huh. Yeah, thank Marcus Pin for that one. You got so she's been planning, for, she's been planning on meeting him. You know, not not to take credit, too. but I believe I pointed that out to Marcus originally personally. Get person. out. <laughs> well, I don't think you were, I don't think he credited you, man. So that's something. Uh, well, it's something that's in the movie. I don't know that I need to be credited for saying, look at the screen in that way. But anyway. <laughs> we fight a lot about who gets credit for what around here, sir. <laughs> Everybody can have all of the credit. You you take all of the credit for everything, John Cribbs. Oh, <laughs> um what's next uh so our next category is kind of a more more abstract sort of category that i just kind of <laughs> threw these three movies into it's dangerous love and the first one is the thin man and the plot of the thin man is an obese upper class lawyer gets distracted one night when his wife goes down on him in their car and runs over an elderly romani woman and although he's acquitted for the death the woman's ancient father caresses his face outside the courthouse and breathes the word Oh, Jesus Christ, John. That was for you, man. I know. That was for you. I know. I'm picturing (laughs) Kari Wurr as we we speak. (laughs) That's Uh, not the plot of The Thin Man. The the plot of The Thin Man actually doesn't matter. I think we can agree on that, right? (laughs) The Thin Man is the Nick and Nora Charles show, America's favorite pre-war alcoholic couple and their dog, Asta. We, we love them. We just love them being together. That's what you love about this movie, right, Bill? Am I wrong? Do you love the intricate uh, murder plots? <laughs> no, I just love Nick and Nora and their relationship. That is a, if Barb and uh, Dave Whiteman are, you know, when things have, you know, when you've been in a marriage a long time and you're like, man, then Nick and Nora is how it ought to be. 
they're so adorable with each other and i love their sense of play the way they uh const- you know the way they spar with each other the way they care for each other um of course i i enjoy their rampant alcoholism people just drank a lot in those movies um one of the funny things when you watch at long last love again is you see peter's movies you see how they're drinking in every single scene and i think that's an homage to to the, that that era but i love i love nick and nora and 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 you and i were speaking before the show i you know i i know that you know there's what five movies in the series but yeah. there's only one book correct, correct. Mm-hmm. and then the rest are just a hollywood thing but i could watch nick and nora forever uh, i don't think they, they they've ever been more charming in any movie william powell and- Amir Nalloy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I thought I'd to say my favorite line from the book uh, gets gets changed in the movie. Um, it always makes me mad, but the, the line in the book is she tells him, I love you, Nick. You smell good and you know such interesting people, right? <laughs> and I guess I guess it makes sense that they would change it in 1934 so she just says, I love you. You know such fascinating people or lo- you know such lovely people. And she says it sarcastically because it's a bunch of idiots, you know, at, at the Christmas party, you know, acting like fools. Um, so I always, always hate that they change that. So, but my favorite line in the movie is when he's got everyone gathered together at the end, he's going to unmask the, the killer and she tells him it's the best dinner I ever listened to. <laughs> <laughs> They're so funny. Uh, Myrna Lewis is just, just so beautiful and adorable. I like the scene when, when he's, uh, he sends her off to, you know, deal with something while he goes to, with a policeman to go check he out. He her into the cab detective. and sends her away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And when he calls her, she does these little these little things with her nose. I mean, she's just adorable. He's adorable. I, I love them. And I just think, that, okay, that's what you want to shoot for, that kind of fun and, and uh, camaraderie and, and having a colleague and having a partner and, and a co-conspirator. I think it's really fun. Who's, who's loaded, who comes <laughs> from right. money. <laughs> that's right well that doesn't hurt oh my god i was going out with this with this chinese woman who's insanely rich like billionaire rich like she and it's it's really incredibly nice i will probably have to cut this from the episode we went we were going to see a a, a movie and uh downtown and we had a little time to kill before and she's like i want to buy some shoes we went into uh to Saks fifth avenue and just on a whim she bought three pairs of two thousand dollar shoes right? Just like on a whim, spent $6,000 on shoes. And uh, one of them, she was like trying them on this pair. And she's like, Oh, it feels so rough inside. I don't know if I want to buy these. It's very rough. Right. And I was like, I don't know. She's like, feel it. I touched it. and It felt like fucking butter. It's like the smoothest, nicest thing I'd ever touched in my life. She's like, this is too rough. Can't buy these shoes. Anyway, it's the princess in the pea in modern era. <laughs> <laughs> and it and it is crazy, but although it's like nerve wracking because we'd like go out to lunch and she'd pick the place. We went to this Japanese restaurant and like fucking everything's like $275. And that whole time I'm like, she knows I can't afford any of this and she's got to pay for it. But it's like, I don't want to start off the meal by being like, hey, by the way, there's no way I can pay $80 for edamame. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're, you're obviously paying for all this, but there's so many of those moments that are so nerve wracking. Like you're paying for this shit, right? Cause I absolutely am. Like, if you ask me to pay, not only will I not, I won't be able to, you know, like I can't, you will, you will max my credit card out getting through this meal. If I'm expected to contribute my half, let alone get it for you. 
Jeez, you guys I, are dating I, vodka heiresses and women who own buildings. My my well, only experience is a woman who lived in New York City, so I had a place to sleep and I didn't have to leave. <laughs> that was my whole rich person dating experience. That's pretty good, John. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. So our next dangerous love movie is Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, right? With which investment banker Charlie Driggs, played by Jeff Daniels, gets caught. Dining and dashing by the freewheeling Lulu, played by Melanie Griffith, who blackmails him into eloping to New Jersey, being an unwitting accomplice to stealing a car and robbing a liquor store, spending his company's Christmas club money, and ultimately pretending to be her husband in front of her square Pennsylvania family and attend her high school reunion. Uh, What about this film appeals to you, Bill? I think it's, uh, I like the sexual energy that's in the movie. I could have, you know, I wanted to pick something where you really felt like, these people have connected with sex, which quite frequently is how it begins. Um, and that's, that's, that's the one I, I, I chose. Now I love the thriller elements of it. I love this shifts in tone. It's my favorite Jonathan Demi movie by a mile. Um, but mostly I love that. It seems that Lulu and Charlie have this sexual connection and I bought it. I think it, it, I think it works. And you do have people do have those lost weekends. They usually don't go as freaking crazy as things go for Lulu and Charlie. Um, but it's good about that. Um, and I also love that Ray Liotta is this kind of dangerous, crazy. Now that's a psycho. Uh, yeah. XX, you know. Um, and that was very intense. Um, Iconic performance. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, UM guy. Mr. Ray Liotta, may he rest in peace, which is insane to me. I thought about a couple of other things, you know, when you think about sexual connection. I've always liked, um, I don't find Scorsese movies to be kind of overtly sexual, but there's uh, one thing he does well, which I think probably comes from his personality, is this, he's not afraid to explore something that's a little off and wrong, like I love the scene in Goodfellas when, uh, when you know Ray Liotta, there he is again, patron saint of strange sexuality. When he he takes the gun and he bashes the guy's head in who, who yeah who tried tried to rape uh, um, Karen. Hey, fucko. Yeah, and 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 he walks over and he goes hide and she goes, I know a lot of girls would have whatever. And then there's that great shot of the gun in the head. She goes, but I got to admit, it turned me on. It's such a great, like, what? And he, I love the power he gives uh, the character of Karen. And, of course, her performance, Lorraine Bracco, is, she dukes it out with anybody in that movie. But I think he does the same thing in Wolf of Wall Street. He's, he, he never moralizes um, the, the, the connection between Leo DiCaprio and um, Margot Robbie. I like that. But I think I chose something wild because I thought it's that same sort of sexual connection that's intense um, and it leads to a bunch of trouble in this particular case. It's a movie after all. Um, I, I just thought that, that was pretty awesome. There's also that Sarah Polly movie that I could have chosen too, but I don't, it's not romantic. It's not about love. It's almost about like, hey, don't do this. Don't Which fuck one? yourself. Don't fuck yourself. Don't fuck your life up. I think it's called Take This Waltz. Oh, okay. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that movie at a time in my life where I was like, oh, I should have heeded this advice. <laughs> but um, but it's, a, I think, a very bracingly, it's almost like a, a 
real life version of something wild where it's not that your crazy ex shows up to wreak havoc. It's that sometimes these choices based on sexual attraction, you know, fade. Yeah. And then what that's happens? Funny. You know? obviously, I wish you obviously th- sympathize in that movie with the Michelle Williams character, Bill. I hated that movie when I saw it. And I, I didn't realize until years later that it was because I sympathized with the Seth Rogen character. I didn't want my wife to have the sexual you know, feelings towards someone else and run off. But you, but you also, you saw it at TIFF and you left to go to another screening before it's over and you didn't see the last 20 minutes, which is the entire moralistic aspect of the movie, you know, that like this will burn out that I really like takes this waltz as well. The one thing I really wish was different about it is when she sees Seth Rogen again, after like they broken up and he runs into her on the street and it's supposed to be like a month or a couple months later that he was over her and had moved on. Cause I think that's really true. Like a famous chef who's young and attractive in a city, like he ain't sitting around waiting for you to come back. That's just like how life is in the modern world. And I think that that would have um, not driven the point home better, but I think it just would have been more realistic about like you make your choices and you do actually have to live with them. You know, that sort of 35 rums ish idea, the Claire Denis movie of like some things happen exactly once in your life. And when you move on from them, they're gone and they never come back. And that's something you have to, to sort of live with, you know, that's a very Bogdanovich theme too, through some yeah. of these movies. And beautifully put, Chris. I mean, that's beautifully put. But yeah, that I was surprised by the maybe you said morality. I don't know. If I want to say moral stance, but it, it didn't seem like a fashionable take in 2011. Yeah, to say like you may not want to fuck up your whole life just for great sex. And it it it, it was a good fucking movie. I do enjoy yeah. going up to people who enjoy the Fablemans and saying. Yeah, it's uh, Seth Rogen, Michelle Williams, take this waltz reunion. And they're like, what, the, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's awesome. I'm a Fablemans fan. We have to have that discussion. So. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk to you about that. Can I just also say we're jumped off of something wild. I love something wild as well. This this category, all three of the movies, Thin Man, Something Wild, and Altered States, the next one we're going to talk about. I, I love all three of these movies as much as I love any movies. They're They're lovable movies you know in some fundamental way there's a terence rafferty line about jonathan demi of um he's uh consistently the most pleasant director to spend time with of the major directors he's the most consistently pleasant to spend time with because he has interests not obsessions and i think that that's what makes something wild work so well is he doesn't as intense as it gets at the end he doesn't want to drive this movie into any of his particular own obsessions he wants to let it keep breathing and going out into this organic spaces and i sort of picture like foam filling up cracks in a wall is how his style works with this movie rather than being like a sledgehammer to hit through the wall he sort of injects his style and fills up the space with it in some way or maybe like another metaphor in my head like bacteria spreading around it just breathes 
in completely different places and heads into different small emotional and thematic and intellectual and stylistic spaces. It, there's obviously big turns that it takes, but there's lots of small turns and small moments that you would never be able to predict and never know in advance. And I think it's because he's not obsessed with anything as a director. He's not trying to have his obsessions drive this film. You know, he's interested in everything that's happening at it. So it's allowed to go. Just you never know where it's going to go, you know? And one thing that... I love these. One thing, Please. Bill... Sorry, just one thing that you made me appreciate, Bill, about what you said about this film, about how good sex turns to domesticity over time. Makes me really appreciate how this really encapsulates like a long relationship over like a short amount of time. How she shows up as this complete femme fatale mystery woman, you know, and uh, completely erotic, completely dangerous. And then by the end of it, you know, that like she's, you know, changed her look so that she's just looks like a regular person. And they're like supposed to be like husband and wife and like introduced to the family and going to the high school reunion and like speeds through like the progression of like what a regular relationship might actually be like what the uh, evolution of that might be. So I appreciate that you made me think about that. I never really cons considered that. What a lovely point. What a lovely point. Yeah. That's a, that, that is a great point. I didn't actually even realize I was making that point, but I'll take it. I'm <laughs> glad you, 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 you came back to it. And we talked about Jonathan Demi because I know how much he means to you personally, Chris, yeah. how much he means to the site, to the pink smoke. And For I was sure. honored to get to write about him, you know, he he went to high school a couple blocks from where we're recording this. He's one of my favorite directors, and yeah. and that movie is um, so yeah. There's the love stuff, but it's also just such a great blast of a movie. It's an all time favorite movie for me. Then uh, personally, uh, my buddy who is not a movie fan, not a movie head, not a whatever, and we wound up seeing it together. He's like, oh my god, that movie was like getting tickled and then getting slapped and then getting tickled. And <laughs> just, it just it just works for any for a layman the same way. Yeah, you know some of his best movies just fucking work. And then his interests for me, but growing up a Latino kid in Miami, Celia Cruz was you know his royalty. Yeah, but you, but that was my mom's music. That was not something I thought would be hip. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you're seeing this movie. Celia Cruz comes on with David Byrne <laughs> in New York City. And you're like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So this is actually cool. Um, of course, now I know Celia Cruz is the coolest person of all time. But <laughs> but just you know, to have a friend like Jonathan Demi, not a real friend, but I wish, but a, a guy that can put his arm around you and say, check this stuff out. Look at this. Look at, yeah. look at these people. Look how cool this is. Look at Roadside America. Look at at this naive art look at these great look at this great music here's sister yeah. carol that's and the uh, the guy who plays uh our friend uh old friend from college jimmy roach his dad is in this movie too playing the like roadside guy that he meets i can't even remember what the scene is but uh it's also funny because it's clearly but you mentioned you're down in florida it's supposed to be they're supposed to be in like virginia but they're clearly filming in florida at one point in it anyway um, this is phenomenal. They're running into John Waters and Sister Carol's, you know, the mm -hmm. waitress, and she's singing the, the end credit song. It's such a playful blast of a movie. I mean, to me, that's him at, at the height of his powers. Yeah. The There's nobody else who could have made that movie. Nobody yeah. else could have could have done it. And it's so points to what's so singular about him. You know, he was funny. I knew him very well through my work, through my job. He was somebody that I think of as a, as a friend. Um, 
it, but he would not talk about his own stuff. You could not get him to talk about his own stuff. He would always want to promote uh, other people's work and advocate for films that he liked and advocate for Young's artists. And you would try and talk to him like, talk to me about Wild Thing, Demi. Like, to, let's, you know, talk to me about something wild. Talk to me about this movie. And, uh, and it just, and it just, there was no, he wouldn't do it. And it was, it was, uh, I, I think it was a real essential modesty of like, I, you know, I'm sure, I guess I'm interesting, but there's so much interesting stuff out there. Let's talk about all of that instead. You know, he would just always redirect the conversation away from it. But you did kind of trick him into talking about this movie a little bit when you did your uh, midnight marathon. Right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. For the, the 10th anniversary of this theater, I was programmed. We did a 24 hour film marathon and uh, and he he came in to to talk about this. I don't even remember what else he talked about. Another movie as well was it Fassbender's Lola that I had him talk in front of. He'd never seen Lola. He actually sat and watched it. Oh, with yeah, I can't even remember it so long ago. But there was like a, it's a it three screen show was the one he talked about. Oh, that's right. It was a three screen theater, and you had a choice. It was a twenty four hour movie marathon celebrating the tenth anniversary. And on each three screens, nothing was announced in advance. You just said, "We're coming for twenty four hours." You buy your your ticket, and you see, you know, twelve movies. And on the three screens, there'd be a choice on each screen. We'd announce, "Okay, here's what's on the three screens. Move to whichever theater you want to go when the other movie ended." Right, and so you'd have a choice of things. And one of them was we had him come in, and 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 talk about something wild. And you're you're right. Now I'm remembering I had it opposite Lola, I think. And he introduced something wild and then came in and sat and watched Lola with us because we watched Lola as well, not his movie. That's, that's so cool. He's the coolest. He genuinely so cool. was. Genuinely, genuinely the coolest. He 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 took he took my DVD copy of Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant to the grave with him, though. I'll never see that thing again. Oh wow. That's an appropriate movie to take to the grave, in my opinion. Um, Altered States, a film that appreciates with multiple viewings, in my opinion, because obviously the first time few times you see it, what you remember is the crazy Ken Russellness of it, you know, the crazy psychedelic <laughs> imagery and the insane stuff. But the more you watch, the more you appreciate that this is a movie about a relationship and it's a film about stripping yourself of your humanity, trying to get rid of your material existence. Uh, and then he goes too far. And the one thing that can bring him back is like this relationship with Blair Brown that for him is like a on and off kind of thing, his relationship with his wife. So it's an incredibly romantic movie, Bill. That's why I was really happy that you had uh, selected this one. I couldn't believe that that was the solution. You know, you see these kind of movies where the guy's trapped between two worlds and he's, he's the very fabric of reality. And what human evolution time. Yeah, absolutely. It's love that can bring him back. That's that is so Ken Russell. You know what I mean? And of course Absolutely. we're lucky enough to 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 know a little bit about him, you know, through different people. And it, clearly the man understood love. And it really comes across in 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 the movie. That scene where like he's gone, but love can save him. That is so touching and beautiful to me. It it's one of the most beautiful love stories I've seen, even though, of course, it's not the rest of the movie's not presented as a love story, but I feel like it's a stealth love story that comes out at you right at the end, you know, and you're like, wow, is that what that was? One of the greatest um, romantic I, lines of all time. You redeemed me from the pit. 
I love that line. Isn't it beautiful? And it's that's love. And what, what better definition do you want? Um, it's and the it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, and it's it it's such an also it's just such a cool movie. I remember reading the book. This has nothing to do with thinking about love. The great line. This has more to do with sex, but it speaks to Eddie Eddie Jessup and and Blair Brown's character. I don't remember her name. Emily. To their oh yeah their connection. And he's going to the, read the book by Patty Chayefsky. He's going to pick her up at the airport, and it's like he was waiting in the line for her to get off the plane. He had an erection as big as a house. <laughs> it was just so funny. Um, but I took it with me to the movie. Like, okay, well, that's their relationship. You know, they connect in every way. Um, really, just shockingly romantic and beautiful movie. Even though it's a, also a scary thriller, you know. Yeah, sorry, Chris. I'm looking some up. If you want to say, no, I this is a I like this movie a lot as well. I don't know that I have any um, special analysis of it. I think that that that's all well put. I, you know, it's obviously that movie. I I think is, you know, I saw that movie when I was fair fairly young. It took me a long time to come around to Ken Russell. He was a director. I had to. I was off put by the movies of his I initially saw and then came around to him more circuitously. I, I forget what the breakthrough film I was. It might've just been the devils. It might've been, I saw the devils in college. It was like, Holy shit, this is one of the greatest movies ever made. Maybe I've been wrong about this guy, but it was you too, John, you told me to watch the music lovers. And I was like, Oh my God, this is fucking phenomenal too. And uh, this was one of this complicated movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I, uh, but I came back to this movie. I'd seen it when I was a kid and actually liked it and not associated it with Ken Russell. It felt like pulpy and weird in a way that I didn't think of him as being it feels like 80s sci-fi you know it belongs in some way to the robocop the fly continuum of of movies in oh, in some it, way it does feel like an 80s thriller and not like a ken russell quote unquote what we think of as a ken russell yeah. film but now i can see but, yeah but but at the same time it there's an dare I say optimism <laughs> that is so <laughs> missing from those RoboCop fly dark kind of like, yeah. all right. Yeah. Everything sucks. I mean, I love Verhoeven and, 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 and there are certain Cronenberg movies that I connect to, but, but generally there's a, a spirit, there's a spirit and, a, and an adventurousness uh, that Eddie Jessup shares with many kind of Ken Russell characters. For sure. For sure. A willingness, there, it's, a willingness to explore. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's very good. And I and it's much easier now that I do know Ken Russell's filmography much better to connect it to his other work. Yeah. I think that's unquestionably true. I think he's unquestionably interested throughout his career, as weird and as baroque as his movies can be, in real human emotions in some very fundamental way, as over the top as his stuff can get. I think that they're actually grounded in giving a shit about the human experience and the human heart in some way that's that's not phony in in a contrast to like i don't know michael winner or somebody like he's genuinely interested in the human experience yeah i like Savage that besides another movie that we could have put with a category we're coming up on artist in love you know that would be a perfect one let's get into that of uh, what's what what category are we doing artists uh, in love love and pieces we're, we're not, love and not sports right to that. we're yeah we're in love and pieces now 
the the shattered remains that we have to glue back together here, starting with the 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 quintessential divorce movie, Kramer versus Kramer. Although it's funny because I rented the DVD from the library to watch it again to prepare for this, and the person who checked it out to me at the library looked at the cover and she's like, "This makes it look like a happy movie." And, <laughs> and I was like, "Well." It's not a completely unhappy movie. I mean, it's a lot. It's about connecting with your child and becoming an actual father. You know, like there's a lot of positivity in this movie. And I think, Bill, what you pointed out about it specifically was like there are still gleams of affection between these two characters, even when they are tearing each other's hearts out on the uh, on the stand in the in their court battle. That is really the one thread that I think these movies that I find romantic have in common is that even when people aren't together, that love never really dies. Um, which is, you know, speaks to my own sort of strange, um, you know, feelings about things. Um, but I think it's, I think it's, it's true. You see it in that last scene, obviously it's about the paternal love and love of a father for a child, but in the marriage, when he, she says something like, I was terrible. I, I'm not. And he, he lets her off the hook. You know, she's put the family through hell. And uh, he just lets her off the hook. He's just like, no, you were great. I'm sorry. I was terrible. And, and he, he, Dustin Hoffman's such a good actor. I, I looked for that Mar- moment specifically after you told me about it. What it is, is they ask her, did you fail in your marriage? Like, was your marriage, was your part in your marriage a failure in your life? And he, she looks at him and he mouths no to her. Wow. She answers, yes. Yes, it was. Wow. I mean, and this is after like, who knows what toll this took on the kid, on every, I mean, and he, it's, that is romantic to me. And it's a strange, but it is. And um, so that that's a moment there. We can do the lightning round because I, I know, you know, these are all moments, you know, unbreakable. I think this is a huge thing to talk about because a lot of people respond like my librarian to say this is not a there's no good things happening in this movie and I know that even Meryl Streep when they were making it was discouraged because she wanted to make her character seem more sympathetic than she was and I guess that was like pushed back on by like Dustin Hoffman and maybe Robert Benton and and everybody Um, but you'd be shocked if you just knew kind of the surface of what this movie's about and watched that court scene the moment that really like stuck out to me was they ask her, the lawyer asks her, was he ever unfaithful to you? And she kind of chuckles. And it cuts to him chuckling too. Like they both know that's not in his character. Like that's almost like an in-joke between them. Like, no, he wasn't running around on me. Are you kidding me? This guy? They both like still have that like connection that, you know, can't be like permanently broken. I think is really makes it like a more romantic sort of scene. Makes it more sense that uh, Renee, uh, Witherspoon, Reese Witherspoon's character in um, the James L. Brooks movie, How Do You Know? loves the movie and considers it more like a romantic film when she watches it. Do you know, do you know, how do you know, Bill, you must like it, right? Have you ever seen it? No, I don't like, I, this is a sin, but I'm, I don't, I have issues with James's films. Interesting. Yeah. yeah they don't, they don't end. <laughs> <laughs> that broadcast. News, as good as it gets, ending. definitely doesn't end. That one goes away. Well, that's, I, I really, that, that broadcast news. About, come on. Broadcast news. There's no ending. That movie doesn't end. Oh, and, you're uh, <laughs> No, no. And, and, and uh, as good as it gets, I get, remember you, you gave me that great example of being like, uh, 
like Cohagen when they're trying to strap him into the no, like Quaid when they're trying to strap him into the chair at Recall. Yeah, I get about that. That's how I get about that movie. I get un, I get unhinged. <laughs> Very surprising. My only relationship to Kramer versus Kramer is that uh, when I was older, I went to watch it again. Like I was like, you know, there's these like late 70s dramas, like uh, early 80s dramas, like Ordinary People and Kramer versus Kramer that had like a reputation at the time that I think cinephiles now consider kind of trash in some way. I wonder if those movies are actually any good. And this was one I watched and I was like, I this movie is not at all how I remembered it being. I thought Drew Barrymore was the daughter in this movie. <laughs> what is Justin going Henry. on? Justin yeah. Henry being fabulous. I, fabulous. I was like, I thought this was you Drew love Barrymore. Movies together. No, and this, and even that, because I had seen them both on TV, irreconcilable differences in Kramer versus Kramer. And same thing, they are just movies from my childhood that are a mass in my mind. I cannot separate them again. It's <laughs> another one where it's just like they will they will never come apart from me, you know? <laughs> Uh, the next one is Unbreakable, which is a scene that, you know, a movie that obviously we mostly consider a superhero origin story, prequel to Glass now these days. Uh, you know, it's about a security guard who survives a horrific train wreck, which leads to an art gallery owner, Elijah Price, played by Samuel L. Jackson, realizing that he's unbreakable and has extrasensory perception. He's a superhero. But that's not what you're okay. focusing on this one, Bill. What is no, it about glass this isn't. Movie? We we do not acknowledge that glass exists, nor do we acknowledge that split <laughs> exists. Uh, and 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 I cannot believe I chose a scene from this particular gentleman, but I do love that scene. We're just talking about scene. I love Unbreakable as a superhero movie. I think it's perfect. We yeah. a great superhero movie. But uh, but I but as far as romantic, I love the scene with Bruce Willis and. Um, uh, who's that wonderful actress? Robin Wright. She's Robin, Robin Wright. Wright. And I guess Robin Wright now, yeah. uh, where they're in the bar and they're talking about their, you know, they're trying to reconnect. And that that stuff gets me. So they're at the bar and they're just naming their favorite songs. They're trying to have a date. And I think her favorite song she picks is Pink. I mean, it's Prince, Soft and Wet yeah. is the name of the song she chooses. And the camera's super far away, as it often is in that movie. And just dialing in ever so slowly as they're having this conversation. I love that conversation. I think it's very real couple trying to reconnect and cross a lot of bullshit. Um, and it's just interesting to see that in 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 that movie. Yeah, I really don't have much more to say about it. I, I love I love the uh... like that in other other movies. <laughs> this one, there it is. I love the uh, the beginning with the uh, where the bit with the wedding ring on the train where he's going to be hit trying to hit on the woman. I think that that's a really great scene about that kind of process of breaking up and being in that state of like semi done with somebody, not actually done with them, thinking about moving on. Sort of the fantasy of of that you're separated from this person, but you're not really. I really like all of that shit. I think that that's that that's good stuff. And, uh, and similar to your Kramer versus Kramer story, maybe not similar. It makes me think of it though. But when I bought the DVD of this at Best Buy in the Palisades mall, when I was back in college, cause I really liked this movie. Which I have uh, the DVD with all the extras too. I love it. Exactly. I went up and when I went to check out the guy, the cashier looked at and looked at it and looked at me and was like, have you seen this? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you've seen it and you want to buy it. 
And I was like, yeah. And he was like, he was like trying to warn me, like, don't, don't buy this. This movie's terrible, man. And he couldn't like understand that I had actually seen it and liked it. He was going to like try and warn me. Don't, don't fucking buy this terrible movie. Well, that guy is a, that guy is a Dorcas. When, uh, (laughs) yes, he was. I can, I can uh, remember him clearly. When, when he looks at the, 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 when you see the painting of the character, whatever his name is, there's like a police sketch of him or a newspaper sketch mm. of him. I think Alex Ross drew that. Yeah. That's great shit. I yeah. mean, that thing in the pool, that is great shit, that movie. Yeah. I don't I can't explain the rest of it. Not not, you know, that movie. I'm not even a big Alex Ross fan, but I love that the DVD came with that um uh, artwork of him at Mr. Glass. Uh, that is, show. yeah, that is that pretty cool. cool. Yeah. That was really I, cool. I love that this movie has kind of a uh, almost a um, altered state sort of thing about it where he learns this huge thing about himself that he is this invulnerable person that he's got these superpowers but what it really brings to him is this memory of saving his wife when they were first going out and they their car goes into the water and he has this memory that he saved her life you know and like brought her out of the water and that for him is more meaningful than like learning this uh, astonishing secret about himself is that like he remembers the connection he has with her and like it makes it stronger for him and then you know the movie ends with this hopeful you know thing that like maybe they'll patch things up maybe they'll still have this connection together i felt that yeah absolutely and then there's tempest moving back into paul mazursky territory let me just ask you guys what is the reputation of tempest have you ever heard anyone say to you i love tempest it's one of my favorite movies have you or one of my least favorite movies have you ever heard what's the reputation of this movie in 2023? This, this is an interesting movie because I think I think uh, you know I've read you know I love Paul Mazursky and uh, um, I've read a lot about that you know his interviews about the reaction to the movie and he's like we showed it at the New York Film Festival I've had a lot of success I've never heard applause like that he's like thunderous thunderous insanity and I saw it. I think opening weekend, I think I saw Christmas Day. It opened maybe Friday, and I saw it on Christmas Day, Saturday. And you had to see this movie in a theater when it first came out. I mean, it's such a, like, it just hits, right? Boom, boom, boom. Um, maybe there are certain things that are a little dated and could have been done differently. But overall, this was a film comment review. I don't remember who wrote it. It's a movie about depression, as a, about magic as a cure for depression. So... <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, I, and Mazursky was like, I don't understand how people could hate this movie so much. I made this movie with like dancing goats and magic and storms. See, this, and, this, that's Ken Russell level <laughs> lunacy. That's <laughs> and, and he's like, how can people be so angry at it? For me, the 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 um, the again, it's a strange um, love story. These two people, this man and woman, have grown apart. I think you guys need to talk about most people listening are not going to have heard of this fucking movie. What is the cast of this movie? It's an adaptation of the William Shakespeare, a sort of like a, like all Shakespeare adaptations. It's like a change in scenery and scenery scenery and setting. Right. Instead of a magician and his daughter, we have a New York city architect who is suffering a midlife crisis played by the great John Cassavetes, uh, the great actor, John Cassavetes. And he decides to abandon the hustle and bustle of modern life and shuffles off to a remote Greek island with his daughter, Miranda, played by Molly uh, Ringwald, and uh, a singer named Aretha, played by Susan Sarandon. 
And he has left his wife, Gina Rollins, back in New York, even though she follows him out to Greece. And uh, they're going to have a connection. But I... And it's also got Raul Julia and Vittorio Gassman in it. It's, yeah, yeah, this yeah. movie is like... I I had never heard case. of this movie until last year. I'd never heard of it. And some movie I rented, I was watching some movie. Was it The Maddening? Where there was there were trailers on it. It was like from a VHS and there was a trailer There's for no this movie. No way the trailer for Tempest was in front of The Maddening. That, that, no way. No way. I I can't imagine what other movie i was watching and i i was like what is this thing i've never heard of this but i will say tempest has to be shakespeare's most adapted play made into movies that people dislike if you want to make a a shakespeare play into a movie that people are going to fucking hate pick the tempest it's constantly being made into movies that people don't like (laughs) and it's interesting because among friends of mine we love it so among yeah. like all the guys that I collaborated with in the early nineties, I was making movies. We couldn't agree on anything. Spielberg's a genius. No, Jordan, you know this guy's a genius. We couldn't agree on anything. We all agreed we loved Tempest. Um, I really dig it, and not I'll talk about the romantic elements of it, but as a movie, the construction of it, it's it's out of sequence. Um, it it moves around not only in time but locations. It's it's a sophisticated movie to follow along, um, and I just I'm head over heels about it. I, it's again an estranged couple. This is a theme, and it's a love story about, I guess the the extremes you'll go to to find that, that best part of yourself to reconnect with the person you love, um, and how sometimes you have to tear everything apart completely. To, to get back, just tear it down to the to the ground. So I was really into this extreme movie, where like people create storms and flee with their daughters from hostile divorces, and you know I was really into this movie. I am really into this movie. I guess I, mean, I guess I mean, forbidden. I guess people like Forbidden Planet. I guess not every adaptation is universally reviled. There you go. I'm really into this one too, Bill. And that's why I kind of jumped the gun by asking what's reputation is because it has this epic poster, you know, with the lightning and like all these blurbs from like critics, you know, it seems like it must've been huge, but I don't remember ever hearing this movie in like the context of like, it was a huge movie. So it seems like such, even like as a Mazursky fan, it just seems like a movie that really fell between the cracks in his filmography um, it didn't. It didn't do business. Besides, I think it fell off after the first week. It might have opened, but it didn't really do business. He was always like, "Man, what's the deal?" And I guess he followed up with Moscow on the Hudson, which was a moderate hit, I believe. And then Down Mountain Beverly Hills was a legitimate hit. Um, but, but, you know, I'm just bananas for it. I find it to be so unabashedly, incredibly romantic. I, I just I don't want to give away any of the details, but I mean, just the, the it's the beautiful score, um, large romantic gestures. I, I, I just can't say enough about it. I think people will really like it, especially if you like strange um, movies that aren't the traditional. You know, this is definitely not a traditional film. Got great lines. Marriage is like baseball. It's a long season. <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> 
Molly Ringwald says to Gina Rowland, he loves you. And she says, maybe he's just not interested, but he's not interested in me. It's like a heartbreaking line. Oh, very heartbreaking. And then I think the movie's full of that stuff, you know? Um, and I think it's a great picture of working and not being fulfilled and doing it for the money and then following your heart. And uh, also kind of a, a raising a family in New York. I just, I mean, I, I can't say enough about this movie. Yeah, it does have New York in it as well. I forgot to mention that. And I love Sarandon's, you know, uh, breakdown of what love is. Right? Foley adieu. One person's nutty and he's with another person. Pretty soon the other person catches the nuttiness and then they're both nutty. It's a great breakdown of what love is. It you know, is. is oh, it definitely way. is. She even gets to sing Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Her and Molly Ringwald gets to sing that a cappella in the That's ocean. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, like it's a strange, a it's really, really, I mean, and I don't want to give away the ending. Because maybe some of the listeners haven't seen it, but that last shot is like, what? Pretty cool. Very cool. Absolutely. It's a cool movie. It's a cool one. It's a good one to pick. All right. So the next category is love and sports, right? Two movies you picked, Bill. Personal best, love and basketball. These are two very fun movies that I also like a lot because they're not like classic sports films. They're definitely romantic films. That's why you picked them, obviously. I did. Um I'm not a, a professional jock, but but I, uh, you know, I, I've been involved with people that have been athletic in some form or another, and there's a mindset to that. And I thought those movies reflected that really well. I don't think athletes are traditional people, and I thought um, it's the same way artists aren't. But I think, but but athletes, I mean, it's another breed. And uh, I thought, especially loving basketball, really does a great job of of uh, showing the intensity that comes with being an athlete. And love almost takes a backseat to things. Um, and I think it's just a fabulous depiction of like an athlete in love. Um, you know, I like that it's personal both athletes. Best. That you know, the love stories both in both of these movies between two athletes and personal best. It's two track and field pen, uh, pen athletes and love and basketball. Obviously, it's two people who know each other from childhood, but they're aspiring to be in the NBA. They both go to USC, so they like just kind of like are right next to each other. This entire movie, just their their fates are kind of intertwined in an interesting way. Usually, it's like a, a you... sports movie, it's like a non sports person is the romantic lead, but here it's like they're on equal footing, which I think is interesting as well. And it's a unique movie because, you know, they know each other since childhood. So it's like one of those childhood, you know, romance from the from the time they're children till they're till they're adults, they're circling each other. But it's such an uncompromising, unwavering uh, look at a character, you know, um, and I just it's 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 hard to I just I understand why Gina Price Bywood became such a big director because and she's pretty big time, you know. Um, but she she just created a movie where the, 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 I love movies that kind of have the courage of their convictions and that the character yeah. really is this person and does not compromise and sticks with it the whole time. And I don't remember the name of the character, but uh, Sana uh, Lathan, I don't know. I hope I'm pronouncing her name properly. To me, the movie's really her movie more than it is Omar Epps movie. And I love the depiction of the athlete and where they, how they love, 
I find it to be really, it just, it, it feels very honest. That's great. You know? It's great and, that they trans, you know, transcend that, like, you know, competition and physicality. And like the main thing I would say about these movies is like the sports is great. Like the basketball, love and basketball is phenomenally well filmed. Personal best, all those kind of pervy slow motion things. I mean, like it's got the sexiest arm wrestling you'll ever see in a movie in that film. Like that's the thing about personal best though. I don't know how public it is. I don't even know where I heard about this because I saw personal best before hearing it. Like Robert Town obviously had a lot of problems on this production, but he had all of this like really grotesque footage of uh of of mariel hemingway where you could like they they were accidentally getting shots of like her exposed vagina and stuff and he would like show it to people all the time and he was like out of his mind on drugs and drunk and stuff and like when i watch this movie like that's all i can think about is like the horror stories but it's a sweet wow what a fucking perv i had no idea yeah, sorry <laughs> to ruin it for you, but it's uh, it's not it's like it was, you yeah. know, the Wizard of Oz. But <laughs> I, and you know, you, they also guy, they also show uh, Dorothy's balls in Wizard of Oz. They film that accidentally too. When when uh, you know when a movie like this is made by a man, you know, it's always going to have not always, but generally, you'll assume there'll be a male gaze to it. Yeah, and you know. As you want, what I was struck by in the movie was I felt that it was somewhat honest about the fluidity of the sexuality of the Mario Hemingway character. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, that's, you know, that's kind of on point. I like that she's dating a man and she's dating a woman and she's just connecting with the person. And I, I felt very honest to me, but obviously, <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to recommend a movie that Pervo is, is, is doing this shit. You know, I'm so like sorry. That. I don't even know why I mentioned it. I mean, it's we don't no, have to but it's important to mention it's it. In, it's in the movie, like not, yeah. not you know explicit shots of you know or private area, but like that sense of like of physicality, you know, and and rawness is definitely still in that movie, and it's. You know, it, it's still a really good story with like really well good acting by like a non actor opposite Mariel Hemingway. There's a lot to recommend in it besides, uh, you know, the grotesque aspect of it. <laughs> well, that, but that is, you know, I can't get Sorry. enough of like, I, no, 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 but I can't get enough of people getting called out on the carpet for that heinous behavior. You know, being involved in show business since my mid 20s, but being in Miami and being around Latino showbiz. We know now, now that it's come out, we see how gross show business can be, right? Latino showbiz, and I'm sorry to speak out of school, but when you're talking about casting, casting like that, man, it, it makes Hollywood showbiz look like, you know, super classic. It, I mean, it's it's a it's a scene. I've seen friends of mine down here that that are women that have chosen not to have a show just simply because they don't want to be involved in, in you know the bullshit that people are are trying to bring up and they've chosen a different, you know, it's gross. And I can't see people get called out enough for it. I watched, um, uh, she said the other night with the same kind of passion that I watched, you know, spotlight, you know, it's that I can't even appreciate it as a movie. I'm just glad these guys are finally getting called out, you know? Um, but you know, not before knowing that I, 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 the movie to me, (laughs) I enjoyed the, Again, the, the, there didn't seem to be a lot of judgment about sexuality 
Yeah. Uh, so that Mario's with Scott Glenn or she's with Patrice Donnelly. And it's the movie didn't seem to my mind to be making any calls about it. And I felt that was realistic, not just with athletes, but with people. Yeah. You know, I think pe- people are much more fluid than they are in movies. Um, and, and that is a film life, that so. ends with like, they don't get back together, but it's okay. You know, like it's okay to move on from a relationship, have more than one relationship in your life. Like it's a very non Hollywood kind of ending, which I appreciate. I like all that. I don't like, you know, I don't like thinking that. that I almost wish love and basketball ended the same way with them not, not ending up back together. I think they have to end up together. In love they and obviously have because to. it's a more traditional love story. They've been surfing each other since they were kids. This, the scene where they're playing basketball in the room for kind of this kind of like strip basketball. Yeah. That's a very sexy scene. It feels very real. And I think it's got a lot of like athletic energy to it. Yeah. Which informs it in a very real way. And I, I appreciated it a lot. Yeah, both movies do for sure. Our next category is writers slash artists in love. Uh, these, uh, Bill, I know this is a very personal category for you. Uh, the three films we picked were Warren. You put you picked were Warren Beatty's Reds, Bogdanovich's The Thing Called Love, and Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive. Am I right in saying that this is a pretty personal category? It is a personal category. All those movies ring uh, for me. Reds, you know, uh, you know, Vince's mom and I were both writers, and we would look at each other, and we were we were capitalists. We weren't like Jack with uh, Reed and Louise <laughs> Bryant, but we were writing side by side and creating this magazine, and I think we identified with with Jack and Louise. And uh, that's a really romantic movie. I think Reds is maybe the last great old timey Hollywood romance ever made. Right. And, and that's uh, a romance between it, uh, uh, two journalists, right? There's a, a suffragist, Louise Bryan, played by Diane uh, Keaton, and the radical journalist, John Reed, played by Warren Beatty. And they fall in love against the backdrop of all kinds of historical events, but mainly the Bolshevik Revolution and, um, and the Russian, you know, just kind of a whole Russian scene after that and the early days of, uh, of uh, you know, baby versions of communism uh, on the rise in America. So it's got this historical backdrop, but at the heart of it, I think, is a really fantastic romance. And almost uh, there's a the romantic rival of Jack Reed, which is Eugene O'Neill, the playwright, played by Jack Nicholson. Phenomenal performance from Jack. Have you guys seen this movie? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, I, although although this is my most absurd movies I combined from childhood uh, until I saw them when I was older, I get I used to get Reds and Colors confused. Wow! <laughs> swear to God, I swear to God, I was like a small child when they came out. Until I was like older so you and a teenager. Dennis Hopper won Best Director for Colors. I, I, they were just some like Sean Penn was in Reds and Warren Beatty was in Colors and they were both about communists or gangs. I wasn't sure. Anyway, same difference, same thing. I was, I, in my defense, I was like five. But anyway, oh, yeah. go on. <laughs> it's funny because we're talking about uh, New York romances and this is a movie that moves from Portland, Oregon to Greenwich Village to Provincetown to Croton on Hudson, and obviously finally to Finland and the USSR. But the scenes in Greenwich Village kind of de-romanticize New York in interesting ways where she feels more like a domestic housewife than anything, you know, because she's so under his shadow and tells him, like, I want to stop meeting you, you know, uh, but that she's trying to be her own person and, you know, be an old, 
her own uh, starting her own career and being a liberated woman. Uh, I don't know. Do you feel that same way, Bill? That it kind of like get a guy get out of New York for this romance to work. Absolutely, and 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 one of the great things the movie does it uses montage so beautifully. I'd say it's one of the top movies to use montage. And uh, there's that great sequence where they're all kind of getting all the radicals in, in Greenwich Village, you know, or getting together, Walter Lippmann and Emma Gold and they're all talking. And every time it's her turn, she keeps trying to say her piece. I write, I write. She's trying to get her words and she never can. And there's a great Edward Herman looks at her and goes, you're an amiable person, Miss Bryant. And a very fine painter I hear. <laughs> and she doesn't even try to correct him. She's just like, oh, God. Um, and then they go off and uh, it, it moves historically from place to place. It's a big, old-fashioned, romantic movie. And um, I, they just don't make movies like that anymore. I don't think they made one after, ever. Definitely not an epic love movie like this. But Anything that they tried to do a little bit love and romance with Sandy Bullock and the other dude and or you know whatever it is I don't think they work I mean this is the one the last one it could it could be absolutely what about I think so we, we talked about Boggy a little bit already but Thing Called Love is one that doesn't get brought up very often in his filmography it's definitely an underrated one would you say I think Think Called Love is underrated, although there's a generation that has no idea it's underrated. It's like a Rocky Balboa where, like, right, the guy from the Eagles did the quote from Rocky speech from Rocky Balboa when they when they won the playoffs. Um, and that speech is everywhere that he gives his son. There's, similarly with the Thing Called Love, if you go on Tumblr, there's a million memes and things and kids just like that movie. Um because it, it does capture a, a really neat thing about being young and falling in love. It doesn't hurt that, that uh, River Phoenix is so so handsome and cool in it. Samantha Mathis, Dermot Mulroney, Sandra Bullock in an early part. I mean, it's a very um, attractive, uh, fun cast. I think it was really Peter's kind of stealth movie about him and Louise falling in love. I think you could read it that way. Um, but it, it, there's another level of, where it's just too two uh, artists falling in love, two writers, right? Two people trying to be country and Western singer-songwriters, at least songwriters. And uh, I think- Technically it, three, because we got rings. the love triangle in this movie, right? That's right. Four, really, because Sandy's a singer-songwriter too. That's right, yeah. Um, and it, it definitely, something Peter always did great, captured the milieu where it's, it really captures that Nashville scene, but it, it, it's- um, it's it's also a unabashedly romantic movie that's sophisticated about its romanticism. So it's like, look, he's always revising, right? So here two guys are in love with the same girl. And instead of ending in violence, instead of ending in some horrible thing, it ends with everybody riding, the, the two guys and the girl riding in the same pickup truck and just like, we'll figure it out. You're not quite sure what's going to happen. And I like that, that, that quality peter's movies and it's a romantic movie as well yeah it's freewheeling romanticism like getting married with a toy ring from a candy dispenser where you know like this is not a good idea this is not going to be like something that can last but like given just the impulse in the moment you know it makes it incredibly romantic he wants to describe this shot. movie which shot is that that shot is gorgeous the the, the the that one shot from the preacher's face all the way out to the back of a 7-eleven where they're getting married Nice. He's described this as a little movie with a slightly meandering French quality. 
it made me realize like that's my favorite quality of Peter Bogdanovich actually is when his movies are more like meandering French quality to them. That's why I really like I think about the, they all laughed and um, movie we're going to talk about in a little while. I, I don't know. I kind of like it when he's not in frantic mode per se, you know, when he's like a little more like taking time and like really appreciating the location, appreciating like the composition and the space and the like real emotions that are in his movies. Like those, that's my favorite quality about him, I think. And then this movie's got that in space. Those are pretty strong qualities. I have to agree. Yeah. And what about Only Lovers Left Alive? You told me uh, it was the most romantic thing you've seen in years. Yeah, that movie Elaborate. slays me. That movie just slays me. Uh, the love that they have for each other, the, the two characters, Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. He's one of my favorite actors. I think he's way underrated. Really? She's one of my favorite She's one of my favorite actors. Yeah, I love Tom Hiddleston. Um, she's, she's, I think, way underrated too. I mean, she's super popular, but she can't be in enough things for me. And to see them in this Jarmish movie, it had that, you know, you ever meet those older couples? And I mean, I'm talking about couples like your own marriage, where they've been together 20 years plus, that qualifies. Where there's a familiarity, there's a love, there's a shared love of talesmans that we hold sort of sacred, I guess. You know, when they're driving past Jack White's house and she's like, oh, Jack White. It's, it's really, uh, there's a kind of gothic rock and roll, sad sweetness to the movie and the viciousness of the fact that they're vampires. They're trying to get around it, um, even though their nature is their nature. Uh, but what struck me about it was their connection. Um, being there for each other, you know, and who knows how many infidelities or crazy things over the eons or centuries they've been around, but their love really, really uh, struck home for me. It, 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 I found it very moving. Their shared distaste for like going clubbing and like doing like zany, crazy stuff that all the young kids are into is like a real palpable kind of thing, kind of uh, sets up like Patterson, his, you know, movie about a marriage in a small town, you know, where it's like you become like, happy and you're like set in your ways i'm like finding happiness in it like you don't have to be out there sucking blood and you know being like a nutty vampire the way mia Wachkowski's character is doing like you're happy just like hanging at home you don't even really like music that much even though you have literally you hoard vintage guitars all around your you know apartment i think that like it's an understanding of like what being an older couple is like and of course in this movie it's like centuries old you know couple <laughs> Yeah. But I think that like it has like a realistic sort of view of that kind of a relationship in this movie. I think that's very well put. Um, and I didn't think of it as a setup for Patterson, which is a movie I love. Not necessarily romantically, although there's lots of great lessons to be learned from Patterson, I think, in terms of romance and enjoying life. Did you like Patterson? I'm glad. That's another oh, art, I did, arts I didn't, and love movie. I didn't like Patterson. I thought Patterson was the most gorgeous thing I've seen in 150 years. Oh, really? Because I've always wanted to do a, a Patterson episode with John Gribbs because it's like essential to a stay understanding John, but he and I have rarely talked about it directly. It's like really, it's it's very important to know what John Cribbs is to understand his relationship to Patterson. It'd be fun to do an entire episode on it with you hearing that you love it as well i i know just knowing john a little bit like i do that doesn't surprise me at all it seems like that is 
exactly the sentiment that John would would feel and would live under. I wish I'd seen that movie when I was younger. I might not have been so stupid. Um, (laughs) It's my son's favorite movie. And I think he's following that example. Like, Like he gets the beauty of just being with someone, maybe writing a poem about her that no one sees and just being, Yeah, you know? That's a deep movie. I'm impressed that he liked it and that it sank in. I was like, whoa. Really happy to hear that you guys are both fans of it. That's great. Um, I also love Only Lovers Left Alive. I think that movie is phenomenal as well. Do you love it? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's one of my one of my favorite Jarmushes in general. I need to I need to watch it again. I do like it, but uh, it's a good one. Next category is love and business. Bill, we promised you get to talk about Chef. You are Chef's biggest fan in the in the world, and I, I love hearing you talk about it. So go talk talk about. Chef. I am a big not fan a of the movie. movie. Not a love I am movie. a big fan of the movie, but I'm not going to talk about the movie per se. But that the I do think it's a an abashedly romantic movie, As, and realistically bold to say realistically romantic uh just when he goes to his ex-wife's place and she's like i didn't like sophia vergara she says to favreau i didn't like what they wrote about you he's like i don't like it either it's so real to me um and the way that everything sort of resolves itself uh i thought was tempest-like in its economy and it's uh, i i find it to be a very romantic movie besides being a a, a fun movie about sharing your passion for things with your children or sharing your art as it were but maybe business but i also found it very romantic yeah it's about separating the art from the business in a big way right i mean like kind of rediscovering like what it is why you do what you do and more than anything figuring out a way to communicate that to your children i mean it's about some some complicated things i think fair enough uh, Drinking Buddies is a movie I've never heard of and I have no idea what it is. So you kind of have to explain to us what it is. Um, I, it's uh, it's Olivia Wilde and Josh Johnson. I hope I'm, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Um, and it's about you know these people that work at a uh, at a beer uh, brewery. Is that the Dawson's Creek guy? No, no, no. Uh, who Pacey? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, what's that guy's name? Joshua James Vanderbeek. That's Joshua Jackson. Uh, no, he's just in some indie films, and I guess he's in you know, I guess he's in some other movies. But um, you would recognize him as uh, in Jurassic World. He's one of the guys in the uh, like the security, the guy behind a computer, and he's got like toys from the original Jurassic Park. Okay, and, and so the, the but I could be quick on the movies if no one's seen it. But what I like it's, I, it's by I like your it. favorite. I I've seen it, but uh, it's by your favorite director, John Joe Swanberg. Ah, okay. okay. No, but no, but listen, you know, Joe makes all kinds of different movies, and I think this one comes across because it's Olivia Wilde and Jake Johnson, Anna Kendrick, and Ron Livingston. What I liked about the movie, what appealed about it to me, was I did not feel like I was watching a film. And in, in terms of uh, don't 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 be smart, I, I in terms of its in terms of its uh, the the way the dialogue the, the pacing that I really just felt like I was watching you know real life, and then I thought it was 
on point about fidelity, infidelity. Uh, so, you know, I have a, a lot of friends that are women. And um, on occasion, I've been told that's not a real, it's kind of bullshit friendship because there's this level of sexual attraction between you guys. You may not be acting on it, but if you're spending time with that person, you're not spending time with me. And if it's the three of us, there's still some odd, you know, man, woman thing going on. It's, it's, it, it's not just a friend. So I thought the movie did a great job. And I don't know if, what I think about that. I just know that I've been, I've been told that. Um, but I thought the movie did a great job of exploring that space where it's mm -hmm. like, we're friends, you're very attractive, but I have someone in my life. But it's not exactly innocent, but it's also not exactly anything nefarious. It's that other area. And then I thought it explored it quite realistically and uh, that that's a real thing. So it's not necessarily romantic, but definitely it explores those areas of love. Done. <laughs> we don't have to rush off of it. It's, it's, it's an interesting but, to hear talk about because one of the things we haven't discussed much and talking about all this stuff is is fidelity which is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to having your eternal only lovers left alive relationship as having is dealing with the issue of of fidelity and commitment and sexual commitment and attraction that doesn't go away attraction to other women to other men that doesn't go away just because you're in a relationship I mean, does it help, you know, a relationship or does it hurt it? You know, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think, well, a little bit of brings a little sauce to the, you don't have to sleep with the person, but when you come home, the energy's raised. And some people would say, yeah, but all that time that you're spending, even if just a little bit of time, you're not present here. Yeah. And you're not bringing that energy here, which I think has great validity. I didn't used to think that, but I'm thinking that these days. I'll have to check it out then. I, you guys have sold me on the movie. I'm interested in. And uh, John, know, do you have do you have female friends with whom you have a lightly disguised sexual attraction that you then come home to Jordy from? Are you kidding? Male and female friends? <laughs> why not? Of course, I'm still going to be attracted to people, even though I'm married. I, you know, of course, why not? Well, I think that's beautiful, mm -hmm. man. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I pers I personally, <laughs> I personally wouldn't do it that way. But that's interesting. <laughs> this it's so movie. crazy. Sorry, sorry, it's so crazy because because I do think it does add something. You don't have to act on it, but it adds a little something. You know, just having that. Yeah, this is my work husband, and you're like, is this your work husband? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this movie's kind of about that. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I, I you know, I, I don't condemn Swanberg anymore ever since his, uh, what was it, his boxing match with what's that asshat's name, Farachi? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah that ever was pretty since like, cool. Like that guy hates him so much. It's like, well, then I like him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm definitely glad he got his ass beat by, uh, by Swanberg. But we all anyway. Are. Bill, this next one uh, you say might be your favorite movie about love. And it might be your favorite of this director's entire filmography. I, I, I think, think that's yeah, an interesting, I think interesting take. 
I think Woody's got like four or five to me masterpieces, but Broadway Danny Rose is my favorite by far. Um, and uh, I mean, I love the other ones, but there's something so complete to have seen that movie come out in, I believe it was 1983, this, this black and white, crazy Italian, and it's so specific and hilarious and so well done, but it's also really romantic in this kind of it has this this music we consider corny or cheesy, but when that song swells at the end and Danny runs down the street to catch Tina, it's pretty romantic. Uh, he steals that last shot a little bit from that 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 John Alveston shot in Rocky, where Rocky runs down to get Mick. But it's true, he does That's it. A good point. But, yeah, but he does it better a little bit, and he ties it all up perfectly to the first shot. And there's a, such economy of. Uh, as a movie, it's one of his best. The economy of storytelling, the fact that he's really acting, he's wearing a costume, and Mia's really acting and wearing a costume, and it's so extreme. I love it as a movie. I love it as a comedy, but I also think it's a stealthy love story. Very, very romantic movie. Um, the way that, that that Danny and Tina fall for each other. Yeah, I think I, I, think goes, I am so impressed that they end up at the diner, that it, like, that it calls back the first shot. That's why I never really connected it to anything else. But that's a really, that's very cool. It, it, and it's very, you know, and they, they lay all these little things. You know, she's like, oh, really? My fortune teller said I would marry a Jew. I mean, a Jew is someone musical. Goes, really? <laughs> did, she, did, she, did she happen to mention which Jew? Um, <laughs> then, you know, and even just just the voices that the, when she goes back to see the fortune teller uh, and she's really distraught about her. I mean, stab Danny in the back. I mean, she is really distraught. This isn't some BS acting like in Alice where you don't buy it or I don't like Broadway. I don't like Purple Rose of Cairo. I don't buy it at all. Here I buy everything. I'm just like, this is this woman is torn up about this. And Danny, man, when Woody opens that door at the end of the movie and you hear the people inside, they're having the frozen turkey. Danny, the frozen just as good as a regular and <laughs> and they're having their weird little thanksgiving party and uh he's destroyed you see he never acts right but in this movie man he's acting when he opens that door and he looks at her he's like things aren't going well i'm i'm, I'm gonna be out of the business soon he's destroyed she wants to come in he doesn't invite her in it's really really it's really, really touching. I, I, I can't recommend that movie enough. That's a great, uh, a great Thanksgiving movie too. <laughs> good point. It you know, you have the parade, and it ends on yeah. Thanksgiving, and and she's haunted by it. I love when she's with Ray, the actor in the shaving commercials. You know, I'm moody, Ray. You know, I was moody when you met me. It's enough with the moods. <laughs> it's funny that um, you it, point out specifically that you don't buy Purple Rose of Cairo when we're seeing like. I think what everyone kind of thinks of as Mia Farrow in that movie, like her kind of more demure, quiet, you know, very vulnerable personality in that movie, as opposed to this one where you almost don't realize it's Mia Farrow until halfway through the movie because she's doing such like a big performance and she's got the wig on and the sunglasses and everything. Yes, apparently she's playing the guy's wife who ran Rouse, the restaurant in New York. You guys would know Rouse more than me. R-A-O apostrophe yes um and she's very aggressive in the movies so, you know my husband was a juice man for the mob really he made juice for the mob 
no, nah, no, nah, extortion, loan sharking. <laughs> like, oh, a professional man. Yeah, but they shot him in the eyes. Oh, so he's blind? Now he's dead. Why? Because the bullets go through. I mean, it's bam, <laughs> bam, bam. There's nothing but jokes. And still, it manages to be um, obscenely touching and beautifully shot. There's that scene, weird things that you don't see in a typical Woody Allen movie. She's having dinner after the, you know, the night that uh, she's with, I think he should be managed by Sid Baccarat. And then she's at dinner with Sid Baccarat. I ordered her, um, no, this is not what I ordered. I ordered Cavazier. She did. I heard her. She ordered a Cavazier. All these stupid, like, little, it's not like a Woody Allen movie. And I like Woody Allen movies generally, um, but it's not like one. It's a unique uh, movie, I think, in his filmography. I'm with you that it's gorgeous looking. You know, Gordon Willis, like, I think he even outdoes himself. Everyone says Manhattan is like the great looking Woody Allen movie, but I think he does an even better job with this one. That, that, that scene where they're hiding out with the balloons is just amazingly well shot. It's a great, great scene. Right. Or the actor coming out of the weeds or uh, yeah, when they escape yeah. into the into the swamp. But I mean, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna tear my tongue out? I'm just a beard. They're going to pull the tongue out of the beard? Um, um, <laughs> but if I may, I mean, it's really funny that the, the kid, he drank iodine when the kid tries to my boy, I could do lines from it all day. I can't recommend this movie enough. It is the tightest 90 minutes in the universe. And, and you really, again, that last scene, that guy can act. I got a double feature for you, Bill. Go. You ever seen Assassination? No, I don't know what it is. Charlie Bronson, all right? Secret Service agent. He is assigned to uh, guard the First Lady. Played by Jill Ireland, his real life wife, just like Mia and Woody at the time. And she hates him, they hate each other, but he eventually has to go on the uh, eventually has to go on the run with her. And they, you know, form this unlikely romance from being on the lamb together, just like happens in this movie. I'm telling you, it is the action version of Broadway Danny Rose. Assassination. Look into it. Oh my god, is that like the I know that must be the sixth movie that I know of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which movie is it is it is it telephone where he wouldn't he refused to kiss her in the airport because in real life he wouldn't kiss, kiss her at the airport wouldn't kiss lee remick when uh don because told him to because he said bronson doesn't kiss at the airport <laughs> don't even kiss my real wife at the airport no way is that sincere that's bananas that doesn't make any sense <laughs> i don't get it i don't get it Did I, I like the thing where he says to michael winner Michael Winter says, I'm going to be making a movie about uh, a guy who's a vigilante. You know, his he goes around killing, you know, criminals that the, that the cops don't get. He takes the law into his own hands and kills them. And Bronson goes, I'd like to do that. Really, you want to do the movie? He goes, no, killed criminals. <laughs> I've heard this story from somebody. <laughs> Probably Chris Funderburg. I'm going to throw that out there. <laughs> it is it is related in an article I wrote about Bronson once. Maybe you read it. Maybe I did. I'm a yeah, and the exa it's exactly right. says I'm making a movie about a guy who goes out and shoots muggers. Oh, you'd like? Uh, I'd like to do that. Oh, you want to do the movie? No, shoot muggers. And that's perfect. I, I, that's is. pretty cool. If somebody quotes your article back to you. <laughs> I, well, I'm quoting somebody. I didn't. I didn't do an original interview with uh, with fucking Michael Winner and Charles Bronson. I got it from somewhere. 
Uh, I'm just saying you probably read my, me quoting it from something. I, I could tell from your terrible Michael Winter impression. <laughs> Michael Winter is dandy, foppish Britishman. Um, Indeed. Any thoughts on Broadway Danny Rose, Chris, or should we move on to our last category? I've never seen Broadway Danny Rose. May I tell you, Chris, that you will love this movie? I should see it. Uh, I've, you I've, will love it. Are you sure? I don't like Woody Allen at all. I think ah, I think I he's what to tell you. I think he's a great human being. I just don't like his movies. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This is very funny. Well, if it's that kind of thing, then you may not get into it. But if you, if, it sounds if like it, this is one. I'll tell you. I'll, I will tell you what. My mom hates Woody Allen. Hates his movies. She's always like Broadway. Danny Lowe's is legitimately great. You should watch that one. So I will trust you and my mom on this. I just I. I think it might be the best one. I mean, I think there's the masterpieces and forgive me, yeah. Annie Hall, Manhattan and things like that. But this is something else because it's so small. It's small. I should see it. I should see it. The other one she really likes is Bullets Over Broadway. And she's like, it's, Bullets Over Broadway. She compares it to this one. So I will. No, oh, terrible. we've got a we've got a we've got a conflict between you and my, my mom. Amazing lady. And I'm just, I think I'm crazy about her because I know so many things about her through you. Yeah. Um, but John Cusack's in Bullets Over Broadway. And so. <laughs> That's a strikeout F minus for you. You don't even like Gross Point Blank? I never saw Grifter, it. The Grifters? Grifters is hokey, bro. There's no way. <laughs> it's so phony. Like. It's bizarre. All, it's bizarre. It's also, there's a phoniness to it. Like, and that Benny, not believable in anything. The, the haircut no it's it and, can't decide what time period it's in it takes a book based in written in the 50s where one of the major subplots is about a woman who survived nazi sex experiments right and it moves it to the 80s while not changing half of the dialogue and setting and that like them running into a bunch of sailors on a train for a weekend getaway it's like what fucking decade do you think you're in in this? It's very, it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. I, I like the tone, was, but it's, you're right to say, what the fuck is going on here? There was a lot of movies in the 90s that we all got sold. Everybody was like, this is a great movie starring great actors. They were usually from Miramax. I rejected it most of all that. It was not my bag. That wasn't necessarily one of them, but it wasn't my bag. Fair enough. Interesting. Fair enough. Moving you should see Gross Point Blank. We, when we talked to George Armitage, he said that Clint Eastwood came up to him at a party and was like, your movie made me cry. I love Gross Point Blank. So you should. I'm a friend that loves that movie and it has a great soundtrack. I'm saying so if, it got, if it got Eastwood, you should give it a shot. I'll watch it. I, I, I recall there was a period where everybody was a hitman in every movie. It's it's definitely got that problem. It's definitely I, I'm not recommending it on some there's some level in which it's of its time so fundamentally like it's it's like one of the sons of Tarantino knockoff, but it's it's its own thing. It's weird. I, you know I'll what I think? It. You know what I think it's close to its closest neighbor is something like something wild, actually. Well, that's high praise. I'll trade you. It's not blank. Yeah. For for Broadway Danny Rose. I will watch. Let's it. do it. Let's All do right. it. And we'll, we'll do a follow-up we'll Patreon episode. Follow-up episode. Follow-up Patreon episode 20 minutes. Okay. I will watch. Love it. I watched it this week, actually. Because I had I watched Broadway Danny Rose this week. 
Done. Perfect. You had Hopefully a girl a who transfer. Loved... Beg your pardon? What were you saying? You had a, oh. a girl? Oh, no, I had a girl who loved that. I had a girlfriend who loved that movie, and I had never seen it, but she used to play the soundtrack all the time. Um, I hope it's a good transfer, a good print of Broadway Danny Rose on the on the thing. Anyway, sorry, let's go. <laughs> I'll buy the Blu-ray. Moving on to our last category is love in retrospect. And the first one we've got is a big one. It's 1979's All That Jazz, which got knocked out of the best picture, robbed the best picture by a little movie called Kramer versus Kramer, which is also on this list. But Bill, talk to me about All That Jazz. Well, I don't think it's a romantic movie at all. But when we did this list, we were talking about moments. Or I, I think I said, you know, I can't come up with uh, I think I came up with some romantic movies and a lot of romantic moments. And so yeah. the romantic moment for me in in uh, in this movie is when, again, it's in a strange couple, when he, he he's about to die and he looks at his ex-wife and she says, um, he goes, well, at least I won't have to lie to you anymore, honey. And she sticks her tongue out at him and he kind of pinches her cheek. Uh, it's forget it the waterworks i'm over the moon i find it very 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 romantic and that's all that i find romantic the other like the stuff with like you know his girlfriend which i guess is i don't know how to say her name and ranking that's girlfriend in the movie and she's dancing with his daughter and the you know what he's like as a as a kind of philanderer and all that it's i love the movie but I don't think it's overly romantic. But that scene with the ex, where, like I say, where love just doesn't go away. It just gets put into some other category. But the, the bonds that you have, um, the, the adventures that you've had, those things remain. That strikes a chord for me. Yeah. And it's, you know, a very complicatedly put together movie about, you know, memory and, you know, the little moments of your life. It's a movie of moments, you know which kind of leads into the next film, which is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is about, you know, all your moments being taken away from you and the fighting to, like, get them back. Um, what are your thoughts on that one? Do you guys like that movie? I haven't it seen it since it came out. It doesn't seem like a movie out. you'd like. I haven't seen it since it came out. I was not a big fan of it, but I know I, I saw there, like, some good stuff slipped in there. Like, I think that there are, like, nice, like, thoughts in that film that maybe don't make it work in total, but like it's got good moments and it was my memory, but I haven't seen it since then. You know, I haven't seen it since I, it came out also. Then may, maybe I was facetious to include it on my list, you know, because I haven't enjoyed well, it's stuck with you. I, I haven't enjoyed Michelle's other movies and I, and a, a lot of the, you know, things that I found moving in that movie, as I try to think of them as who I am today, something I wouldn't really, um, I wouldn't dig it too much, but when I saw it, I was legitimately like destroyed and moved. And I hear it's a, I think it still does that for young audiences. You know, young people, I think in their twenties watching that movie coming out of that first love. I think that movie resonates. This is supposed to be my list, not generally recommendations. Yeah. Um, so I wish I would have had time to watch it again. But when I did see it, it slayed me. I really identified with the, the absolute despair of when love's gone, you know? That's something that Sarah Pauli's movie also captures, that absolute despair when you fuck it up, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Are there, 
you know, it's something that I think about a lot now is movies that I see now that have a much greater impact on me now than when I saw them when I was younger. You know, like most recently, Truffaut's The Green Room is a movie I'd seen when I was younger that like I liked, but now is really incredibly moving to me. I haven't thought much about in reverse the movies that emotionally impacted me a lot when I was younger, that if I were to go back to them, would they still have that effect? I haven't thought about that as much. Is that something that you find you run into or do you just not go back and visit them? How much how much is that emotional experience separate for you? You know, uh, you know, is that an experience you have a lot? I'm always one of the most interesting things that I know this is probably true for you guys too, even though you said not so much, but I bet it is, you know, a lot, so much of it is, is how did this thing that affected me at that time, how does it affect me now? Yeah. And, and, you know, we've had those shows, we've done Star Trek, we've done Raiders. <laughs> it yeah. moves me just as much. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck uh, eternally 32 or eternally 18. Um, they, they still well, play me, was... but yeah. No, please. No, when I was young, it's funny thinking about this question. I was really into horror movies and transgressive cinema and like perverse, weird shit. Like that's what I loved when I was in my late teens and early 20s as like very violent, very depraved, very nihilistic sort of cinema and i don't necessarily have much of a relationship to a lot of that stuff anymore it's funny what i was in was so like i think because psychologically i think that's all fitting for where i was at and who i was as a person at that time i don't have like emotional movies that i liked from that era or sentimental or love type movies you know because i i don't think i was apt to be a romantic person or feel those kind of emotions when I was at that age, it was much more drivingly nihilistic and transgressive and, and dark at that age for me. And those movies, I definitely like, I, I, you know, I still like, uh, plenty of, I'm trying to think of who of like Mieke or Cronenberg. Those are movies from that era that like, definitely I still like, but I definitely have less of a relationship to them. Like crash isn't a movie that I watch anymore. And I'm like, this, this is me. You know what I mean? In some fundamental way that I was back then or, or funny games or something like that. It feels much more like, um, that's like the past that's been, been closed for me in some way it's like is there are there any emo movies that used to like get me emotionally that don't get me anymore and i'm not i'm not sure that there are i'm trying to think i had a breakdown once watching uh i worked this summer job uh at a um as a dishwasher in a kitchen at the christiana hilton in christiana delaware and it was uh, two restaurants and three banquet halls. And it was just a nonstop um, dishes, just nonstop all day long. I didn't have a single break hand washing dishes and I would get a 15 minute break to eat lunch. And there was a, a red light stoplight you could see on a remote road in the back. And it was very infrequent that it would turn. And I knew I got five cycles of the light because it lasted three minutes each cycle and I would just watch the lights turn and sit there in like the trash loading dock eating my lunch and then go back to working. I was like soaked with sweat. It was miserable. And I was the night steward too. So after everybody was done, I would clean all of the ovens and vats and 
fry oil and all of that. I would clean the entire kitchen too. And I couldn't leave before that was done. So if that took one hour, I'd be done. If it took four hours, I'd be done. And I was just miserable in this job. I remember at one point thinking like, I'm just going to tell everybody I went insane. I'm going to be like, I'm sorry. I can't get out of bed today. I've gone insane. And everybody will understand. Like you, my mind is broken. I can't go. Very miserable job. And I was working six days a week for some reason. I didn't get any breaks from this job. And uh, and I got off early one day. I got done early, right? And I was at like 1130. And I was like, oh, I bet there's still movies showing at the Christiana Mall. And I went in like my my hounds check pants and paper hat and the white shirt. I think I forgot to take my paper hat off, right? Like picture an old style like a uh, like um, soda jerk, you know, is what I what I looked like is what was my uniform working in this kitchen. And I was like, I'll just go see whatever's showing. I went to Christiana Mall. I'd missed everything except for my best friend's wedding, the Julia Roberts movie, right? And I went and saw this movie and I had a breakdown where I cried from virtually from beginning to end at my best friend's wedding, just tears like it's so beautiful and she wants to be loved and she can't express it. And she doesn't know how to have a healthy relationship and just just like wept openly watching this like alone dressed in a greasy paper hat in a mall movie theater breaking down at the sight of my best friend's wedding and i always think what what the fuck would happen if i went back and watched that movie now like what would happen to me spiritually morally emotionally if i ever watched that movie again like what i i'm i'm worried i'm i'm worried to watch it it was like one of the most intense breakdown experiences I've ever had in my entire life. And two, and I loved, it was also weird. I loved Cemetery Man, De La Morte, De La Morte, with Rupert Everett, right? Because I was like a horror movie fan. And so seeing him in that movie too, I was like excited to see my guy having a career. Hey, blowing up in Hollywood. It was very strange. Anyway, not too much of a transgression. I'm sure I've told you that story before, right, John? Of course. Yeah, of course. I got an under the breath, of course, from John. <laughs> but that is kind of a great thing to discuss on a show about love because it's a movie show. And that's movie love at its best. I mean, when you're the bummedest, when you're super trapped, that, you know, you're working that dead end thing, you know, the two things that can... And that's the other only- thing. I've, let me say too, I wasn't sure I was going to get in college. I had failed out of high school and had to get an equivalency degree. So that was the summer before my senior year in college, I think, where I, before my um, senior year in high school, uh, I think where I wasn't sure I was going to get into college, right? I wasn't sure I was going to be able to go to any university. It was like sort of special circumstances that I was able to attend the college I went to. And I was like, this is going to be my life. I'm going to be doing these. I fucked everything up and I'm going to be doing this kind of job for the rest of my life. And that that's it. You know, like if everything goes great, I'll be like uh, the, the line cook. You know, I'll be like the metal dude with the long hair that's just listening to Metallica in his headphones, you know? When you've been in those dead end situations, I, I attended Miami Dade Community College for seven years. Yeah. <laughs> and I did not like 
You know, I know we discussed have, it on the Williford episode. Did you have him for right, a teacher? I didn't, I didn't have a I didn't have a wish, but I, I didn't but he was there and I, I had no options. I find movies are one of those things that can that sports listening to sports radio like gets you through, right? Because you're stuck. Yeah. So those are the and you have to think about something else, but movies are much more transportive and you sit in a theater and you let all that wash over you, you know. How, that's why we love the movies. So to have that experience, it just makes sense. That it would be that that level of emotion. Like, oh fuck, this is the thing I love. Yeah, that makes sense. Much, I didn't much shorter, social... much shorter story from me, <laughs> but maybe more relevant because it is about having just broken up with a girlfriend. What movie wrecked me? The end. Of what movie wrecked me because of this? The hot chick. Oh really? No, just kidding. It was Titanic. It was actually James Cameron's Titanic in the theater. Oh Where really? I left the theater blubbering <gasps> to my friend. How old? I'll were never you, have. I'll never have a love as pure as these guys do. I saw Titanic you, at John? the Christiana Theater as well. How old was I? Was uh, would be my first year of college, freshman year of college. No, Shout. that's a beautiful movie. That's a beautiful movie. I, I mean, I cried in that movie. I don't ever want to see it again. But I saw it at the theater and I <laughs> cried like a baby. You interesting. Me, you know? Do you cry frequently at movies? I can't cry in real life, but I cry nonstop at movies. Broadway, Danny Rose, I cry all through the movie. That's <laughs> that's me too. I'm a really super easy mark at the movies. I will tear up very, very easy at movies. I was just watching something recently with Parker, with my son, and he looked over at me and he was like, what the fuck is going on here? And it was, I can't even remember what it was now. I got I got all welled up for it. But uh, in real, yeah. real life, I have trouble with movies, no. Yeah, I can't imagine crying in real life. That seems like not even not even on the the platter, not even an option in some way. But movies like just tear up at anything and sentimental too. stuff too. Me Very too. sentimental stuff. Well, guys, we got one movie left and uh secret agenda here, Bill. This is really the movie I wanted to talk to you about a lot. I had a big, big reasoning for me wanting to do this episode with you. It's Peter Bogdanovich's Texasville. That's right. We're bookending it with Bogdanovich. Texasville, you know, my, I didn't see it until after he passed away. I had never seen the movie until I did a big rewatch of all of his films um, last year. And my, I, my, my perception of it, the seeming, the seeming reputation of it was, it was just a movie that everyone politely ignored. You know, it must be terrible because nobody talked about it. Uh, you know, reviewing his films, talking about his filmography, Thing Called Love got brought up more than Texasville. It's just something that didn't get talked about by anybody. Sort of like another Larry McMurtry sequel, The the Evening Star, just never got talked about because uh, it was clearly so inferior to Terms of Endearment. And my confession to you, Bill, is I, I like this movie better than The Last Picture Show. Honestly, it's, it's, it really thrill. speaks to that, me. That's thrilling to hear. Please go on. I It's... Obviously, I'm closer now to the age of Dwayne Jackson in this movie, Jeff Bridges' character, than, you know, I am his character in Last Picture Show. So I can kind of uh, appreciate what he's going through in terms of his mid midlife depression and, uh, you know, being, you know, someone who feels like he never lived up to his potential, even though he is clearly a successful man who is, you know, having business trouble, but like, you know, has got everything more than anyone in his town certainly would have, you know. The whole of his accomplishments are maybe hollow, that maybe all the relationships he's had, the family he's had, aren't meaningful the way that they should be. That he's really reflecting on his life 
an interesting way. And then having this connection with this high school sweetheart who comes back to town, which is clearly a very meaningful moment in his life. But like, what does it mean now? All of that stuff really sunk into me. And what you guys are talking about crying at movies, nothing gets me more than like, you know, shit with like parents, you know, dad and son uh, situations. And so it's really rare for me to get emotional in a film where that's not really the case. I like what like you get the closest to here is his relationship with um, uh, Tim Bob's character, who's kind of the main character of Last Picture Show and is kind of relegated to like more of a supporting character in this but like old friends who are now like one of them is successful and one of them isn't. And then him him becoming like the father figure for him, like this late in life just was very impactful to me. And uh, yeah, I I like this movie. I think it's got a lot of weaknesses, obviously, but I think that the good things outweigh the bad. I think Annie Potts is fucking great. Walks away with this movie. I think she's freaking amazing. Steals it from everybody else. I was so surprised and I loved reading Bogdanovich say, you know, mid, a midlife crisis is funny. You know, like it's 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 not tragic <laughs> because it's funny, um, but it's also deeply sad. You know, like I that's what I felt watching this movie is like really amused and also very sad watching it. So I'm I'm really glad I watched this movie and I watched both versions. I watched the director's cut as well to kind of get like all that extra stuff in there. So well, that was, was going to be my question: good. is 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 there a version? bill that we should be watching in your opinion well obviously it affected john a great deal i'd love to know john's opinion since you watch both for me i go with the director's cut but i don't know what john thinks and i'll tell you why but i'm curious what john thinks. no clearly yeah with the director's cut i mean he just talked about uh uh where she sings the hymn at the um you know the the centennial of the town uh that's only in the director's cut that's a very moving moment like very subtle moment like you kind of don't even realize for a minute that it's her who's singing it but it's and, you know, and, something that comes kind of di- di- diegetically into the film and just kind of strikes you just the right way. I wonder if this made it into One Day Since Yesterday. I don't know because it's in the director's cut, which isn't released. But, and I, but I'll put it in the beginning of the next thing I do about Peter, uh, which would be an expanded One Day Since Yesterday. God willing, I have an opportunity to do it. But there's a great scene where Jeff Bridges goes to Sam the Lion's He goes to Sam's grave and it's next to Billy's grave. And he can hear this conversation that he's, I think he had with uh, Sam Bottoms. He says, I just hate for them to be forgotten. And Jeff Bridges goes, I think most people are forgotten. And then the camera just kind of, it's so moving, so pretty. Um, And I mean, Peter's movies always have that. Is the word, is it pronounced elegiac? Yeah. The quality of an elegy. Yeah. Uh, they have that quality. This is like him at his most melancholy, but loose. The ending of that movie, uh, when they play Let's Leave the Lights On Tonight. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of anything so explicitly sexual, but honest. You know, country music often explores you know uh themes that other music doesn't really explore and let's leave the lights on tonight is such a kind of explicit example of that the guy's telling the the you know no i want you to really see me tonight if we're going to be together 
don't think about anybody else. Let's you and me, let's leave all the bullshit behind. Let's just be you and me. And this movie, although being sort of a weird broad comedy that doesn't really work as a broad comedy and having these strange beats and moments, there are other things in the movie that just slay you. Um, uh, in the director's cut, uh, they're watching Gloria from John Cassavetes and Sybil and Jeff Bridges falls asleep, you know, and when he, he wakes up, the movie's over and he kind of pretends, oh, it was great. He's been out, you know, <laughs> um, but it's affecting Sybil because she's lost uh, a child and that loss of Sybil's could stand in for Donovan, he thank God his, his kids are okay, but the losses that he's had in his life, you see his hand in all these things. But I'm getting lost talking about the movie from a romantic sense and a sense of love. Um, and um, and I do have to talk about it as a movie just one more time because I want to talk about Annie Potts. Man, you, you really see the that we were talking about how he casts women in his movies and what he does with women. The difference between Annie Potts and Ghostbusters. And Annie Potts in Texasville, where he sees her for what she is. She's this fabulous, sexy, gorgeous, powerful woman, you know? Um, the same way that Sandra Bullock and uh, Sam Matheson are both, you know, awesome in the thing called love and are surrounded by more awesome women. But anyway, Annie Potts is uh, amazing. And you, you, you like so many of the women in his films. And she plays that the wife Sybil comes into the situation and like in drinking buddies now there's like that third person that you're spending time with but it injects a whole new life and love and romance into their relationship and this is a, something I've encountered in life I'm sure we've all encountered it where you're hanging out with that other girl your friend's friend or your friend and now it's a trio and you're all hanging out and you're not together but the energy of that, the sexual energy that's resonating among the three of you is elevating your own relationship. It's rejuvenating your own thing. It's, it's strange and it explores those kinds of themes. There's not a lot of American movies. That's a cliche, but there's not a lot of American movies that explore those kinds of feelings. None. And, uh, I mean, his line where he says, I'm too middle-aged to be in love. And you know what he like doesn't get is like, don't you feel like there's love between all of you you know like there's like a different kind of love with every character in your life right now like every person in your life it's you know doesn't need to be like you know uh restrained to like this is a marriage and this is an affair and this is an old girlfriend anything like that it's like you can have this love for people and it can always be there it doesn't have to be something that's restrained in any way and that's something that i feel like maybe he realizes by the end of the movie maybe like that's the thing that he needs to kind of like confront and understand I think that might be the, exactly the the case. I mean, it, it definitely has an uh, uncommon approach to L-O-B-E and how it affects people and how, you know, it, it, love is just love. And yeah, it's different. He, he's got it for Annie Potts, but Annie Potts is feeling it a little bit for Sybil and for Jeff. They both appreciate him, even in his male buffoonishness. They they kind of like, it's endearing to them in a way. 
So um, nice, nice little connection here because there's the whole they do uh the Adam and Eve sketch and you know specifically Adam's rib you know going becoming Eve um I, I just happened to rewatch this the same night I watched Moonstruck where Olympia Dukakis is blown away by Danny Aiello saying to her she she asked him the question she wants answered by everyone is why do men chase women right in that movie and his response to her is uh well you know how they took Adam's rib I think it left a hole in men and that's why they're trying to always fill that hole with a woman. And she thinks it's like the perfect answer. So it was just kind of nice to have, you know, connection between those two films and realize that like, you know, they like, there is a hole, (laughs) you know, I think that we all have that we all need filled. And that's like a really romantic sentiment that I think applies to both movies. I love that. I think that's true. And in that ending, where they play Let's Leave the Lights On Tonight by uh, Johnny Rodriguez is uh, a killer. Um, just because, I don't know, the, the same way Hank Williams, I just find it, and just now talking about it as a movie, Hank Williams ends <laughs> picture show, Johnny Rodriguez ends um, Texasville. It's a much less stately, um, classy choice, but he's not going for that. It's color. It's, it's not that kind of thing. He's, it's sort of of the moment, even though that song's from the 80s and the movie came out in 1990. Um, it's very of the, of the moment. And uh, I, it's you know, very touching about the complexity and of love. Oh, you said that to start the episode. It's complicated. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad because, you know, I have, they all laughed. I have St. Jack. And like, what's my third Bogdanovich movie what's the top three for me has always been like I don't know like I love targets but it doesn't feel super Bogdanovich you know the way that his other movies do seems kind of weird to like say that's my third favorite one I think now Texas feels my third I think that that fills it in for me that fills my hole and uh that didn't sound right that fills the hole inside of me that like you know I needed another Bogdanovich movie to like consider one of my favorites I'll take that I love it Bill, thanks again, man, for doing this and talking about all these movies. It's been just terrific. I, you know, yeah, thanks for doing here. the show, man. This is epic and incredible, and there's nobody else I would have rather uh, talked with about it. It's a it's a fantastically interesting list of of moments that you uh, that you brought to us to dig into. You guys are the sweetest. I um, I wish you both a very happy Valentine's Day. But thank you for letting me. Are. You know, thank you for letting me share with you guys. Absolutely, Bill. Love to have you on the episode. Uh, it's amazing how much I'm going to cut from this thing. It's truly incredible. All the things I've said that won't make their ways into the ears of our listeners. Oh, I understand. Believe me. <laughs> I may call. I may email you like, oh, hey, could you maybe trip this one thing?